0: Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing well. Before we get into things today, I just wanted to thank you all so much for your constant support here in the podcast and on the YouTube channel as well. Without all of you, none of this would be possible, so thank you. And with that, let's not waste any time and drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. There is something truly sinister in the woods of Maryland. Written by Bailey Swinson I never believed in monsters, witches, or any of that nonsense. But if none of those things are real then, what drove us out of a house that me and my girlfriend were happy in? If there's no such thing as malevolent unseen horrors, Then what did I see in those woods that I now know have been abandoned by God and all that is holy? My girlfriend and I had just graduated college, and we had to face the Herculean task of looking for a place to live, with a ton of student debt and no job. My parents weren't really around to give us any shelter, and I would rather be homeless then live with my girlfriend's mother and her whipped dog of a father. After a long time of looking, we finally found a place somewhere back in the mountains of Maryland, a small, humble abode by the roadside, with neighbors separated by thin strands of woodland and a furniture store that we could both get a job at right down the street. And also, there was a solar power farm right down the road as well. In short, it was the almost ideal home, except for the fact that the landlord was a dying, greedy old man who practically spoke in snarls and murmurs. His wife was much easier to deal with, and she was the one who gave us the tour of the $600 a month property. Honestly ludicrous in price for the area and the house, especially since it came with two sheds that were almost exclusively for the landlord's personal use. The house itself had one bedroom, one bathroom, a sizable living room, and a small kitchen. It also had an outdoor patio space, big enough for us to invite our friends over for a board game night every once in a while. My girlfriend had asked about the woods across from the backyard, where through the trees you could vaguely see the facility that the tourists who visited the lake area would store their overpriced boats at. The landlord's wife told us that the woods weren't technically part of the property, and that no one ever goes through there. After the tour, we made our first month's payment. ...and got what little that we had brought with us unpacked. It was a fresh start for my girlfriend and I. After unpacking our things, we did a much deeper inspection of the house... ...more importantly, the bedroom area where we would be sleeping. Even in the early spring of Maryland, the weather could be quite wet and cold... ...but this room was unnaturally so... From the moment that we set foot in it, we felt like we had just walked into a cave. The carpet was so cold that it almost felt moist. I could almost see my breath, and to our left was the only object here before us, a single large mirror up against the wall. My girlfriend and I decided that it would be better to maybe hold off on sleeping in this room. It was getting late, and we hadn't had any time to set up our bed before. We were both too tired to even carry on. We decided to use the pull-out bed underneath the couch and to sleep on it for the night. This place was definitely the furthest from our dream home, but it was still pretty cozy, and we finally had a place of our own, and I couldn't wait to explore the woods outside. Later on, I awoke around 4 a.m. with horrible sleep paralysis. My gaze was fixated at the curtains, where I saw a figure through the moonlit white veil. It was tall, and even though I couldn't make out more than a shadowy visage, I knew it as real as the fear in my heart, and it was watching me. This stalemate continued until... I could see a thin hint of blue dawn light, and the shadow seemed to fade and disappear completely. Free from my sleep paralysis, finally, I decided to fall back asleep, until my heart stopped pounding. When I woke up in the morning, my wife had already prepared a breakfast banquet of cereal and milk, pretty good stuff. We planned to go across the street after and talk to the furniture store owner about maybe getting a job. I opened the white curtains to a beautiful morning with a front row view of the rising sun gracing the tree line. I could tell that I was just anxious about being in a new home. And this place really was our little slice of paradise, at least during the daytime. We made our way over to the furniture store, and we met the shop owner, a welcoming lady in glasses and a ponytail. She couldn't have been older than 25, seeming rather young for a shopkeeper. Lucky for us, she was in need for workers and practically hired us on the spot. She gave us the paperwork to fill out, and we went through the formalities of exchanging employment information. Everything was going so right for me and my girlfriend, and to celebrate, we decided to take a victory lap through the woods in the backyard. It wasn't part of our property, so my girl was a little concerned about walking through there, but I assured her that nothing would happen, and if the forest rangers found us, they would simply tell us that the area was private and that we had to turn around and go back. After getting her to agree, we marched into the green sea. Looking back, I wish we had never walked into that godforsaken place. When we traversed the thin trees that line the edge of the woods, we entered in a small opening of bushes. It was almost like the forest had a natural gate leading into it. When we walked through those gates, We found that it wasn't natural at all. The inside of the grove area was large and spacious with two bonfire areas on each end of the clearing. I, um, I don't think we should be here, my wife said with a bit of concern in her voice. I was almost ready to believe that she was right, but stranger was actually the woodland area. We passed through to the other side of the grove, and what we saw defied explanation. In the center of the area was a large tree, bigger than any of the others. The troubling thing about it was the fact that the bottom of the tree looked burned and charred. It was strange as there was no other evidence that there was ever a fire in the area, We looked around and saw branches and sticks woven together through the trees to create a type of fencing area. It was like whoever was here before us had been trying to build a fortress or some kind of natural cathedral. We took a closer look at the burnt tree and found small sigils and ruins carved around the tree. It even had slashes that looked like someone was attacking it with a machete. I I don't like this place. I'm going back inside. She turned to walk back in, and I looked up at the top of the tree to see a murder of crows that almost seemed to be staring directly down at me. I followed suit and went back inside with my wife. When we went in, We had finished unpacking and even got our bed set up in the bedroom, before another mundane day in our new house had concluded. That night, I woke up again this time, not to the feeling of something staring at me through the window, but staring at me through the mirror. There was a shadow in the mirror, I could tell that it wasn't mine and through the darkness, I could see white teeth break through a smile. I wasn't smiling, and my girlfriend was asleep next to me. It gave my body chills, but nothing could make my blood run colder than the sound of scratching and a light tapping on the window. My head turned slowly from the mirror, and to the window where I could see a large black bear. It didn't snarl or roar, or even try to force its way inside. It just watched me. I couldn't scream. I couldn't even cry. And I froze when I felt cold fingers run down my shoulder. Thankfully, I was in bed when I would passed out from terror, I woke up at 10am the next day, remembering that there was no time for sleeping in, because I had a job to do, and I wrote off the previous night as just another bad dream. The boss wanted us to be into work at 11, and I had about an hour to get ready. The job was but a 60 second stroll down the road, but I liked my long hot showers. It was then that I realized something was off about the water. It was almost slimy, and it turned the curtains orange with rust. My landlord had said it was because the well that our water comes from has high amounts of iron in it, but I still didn't want to be in there that long. I got out of the shower, got dressed, and we made our way to our first day on the job. Her job was a simple customer service and just some front desk work. Aya, on the other hand, had the job of assembling furniture and making deliveries to the Lake Resort area. Eight hours later, my wife and I clocked out and we made our way back home. Just as we were about to cross our front yard, the setting sun betrayed something neither of us had noticed before. Sitting at the base of some of the trees were small glass jars. We thought that it was the neighbor, but when we had picked it up and opened one of the jars, we found some odd things inside of them. There were some leaves that were brown and dead. Others had trinkets and gems, and the last item was a piece of paper with a sigil that seemed to be written in something the color of brown dried blood. It was these same sigils that we had found in the tree. Honey, I don't think we should stay in this house anymore. Unfortunately, we didn't have the money to move again, but I was totally on the same page as her. The markings, the shadows, the unexplained forest, none of it made any sense. That night would be the last night that we spent in that house, Like the two previous nights, I woke up one last time to the sound of a low droning coming from the woods outside. It sounded like a chanting. Instead of being paralyzed this time, I walked overwhelmed with concern and curiosity outside into the foggy night and into the darkest of the woods. From the same grove area that we had been to before, I could see the large tree with a small fire underneath it. And surrounding this ginormous tree were two men half-naked, dancing and chanting around the tree. What was this? Some kind of hidden cult in the woods? That's when, riding on the back of a bear, there was a shaman dressed head to toe in voodoo-looking attire His flesh was painted in red. It could have been blood. It had strange patterns and he adorned skulls and talismans all over him. He had jagged, bloodstained teeth and razor-sharp claws and he wore a crown of deer antlers. There was no human being. I'll tell you that right now. But I swear he looked right at me. And the two men stopped their dancing to turn and look at me as well, with their white, dead, lifeless eyes. I turned and ran straight into the house, into the toilet where I vomited the past three days' worth of fear and concern into the toilet. Honey, honey, are you okay? It was my wife. We need to get out of here, now. Her safety was my number one priority. And I didn't want her anywhere near those maniacs out in the woods. We quickly got out of there and we didn't turn back. On the way to a motel, I explained everything to her and everything that I saw. About the shadows and those people in the woods. Now, I could see how she would be skeptical. But she knew that I was a line. She felt the same way that I did. Plus... I never lied to her about anything, and she could see that my fear was real. We still kept our jobs at the furniture store, and we only go back to the house to pick up our things during the day. We live with her mom and her father now, and yeah, she isn't the best, but I'll take somebody nagging over being sick with fear any day. And I don't go hiking in the woods of Maryland anymore. I was sent to guard an army base abandoned in 1952 following a classified incident. Written by With Bite. I was a grunt. I had been trained to run towards danger, to not question orders, to appreciate the importance of polishing and precise folding and saluting. Some people might have said that this made me dumb. Well, I would have told those people that they did not know me. I grew up in a town where 60 was old. Poverty and the booze and the drugs which followed in its wake cut short a lot of lives before then. Men and women. Hardship did not discriminate in my experience. Prison could seem inevitable for some, and for a while it looked like that was where I was headed. But then I enlisted... And all of a sudden, the world had a horizon which stretched further than the gutter. Do you know the most important thing I learned in my basic training? I learned how to hold my head up high. So yes sir, that was me. I was 21 and I was stationed in a base a long way from anywhere. There was nothing to see beyond the perimeter of the base other than desert. I liked it out there. At night, the sky was a wonder of stars and the days were spent in the routines of training. We all knew the call might come at any time for us to up sticks and head to one of the dozen hotspots around the world where trouble was brewing. We would be going as peacemakers, but a stray bullet didn't see the difference between a soldier sent to help protect and one there to invade. Whatever situation we found ourselves in, we would be ready. Beyond the training, downtime was excellent. The food in the mess was the best that I had ever eaten. There was a cinema on base which had all the latest movies. I was not too keen on the endless procession of superheroes, but I loved settling down to watch alien monsters getting their backsides kicked by wisecracking dudes. I didn't have a girl back home, but I had met someone on base. Kirsty was 23 and a medic, Relationships between soldiers on base was against the rules, but as long as we were careful, it was fine. Still, there were times that I felt like a teenage boy sneaking through his sweetheart's bedroom window, all the while waiting for a dad to come out and start hollering. All in all, life was a breeze. It was not until the orders came through about Camp Adams that things started to twist out of shape. Camp Adams was a former military base sighted to the east of ice. It was a two-hour drive and I felt every rattle as the truck transporting us there crossed the rock-strewn Desert. There were no road and no signs. Earlier that day when the orders were issued, the officer addressing us told us that Camp Adams had been decommissioned in 1952 and that it was now derelict, that we had been assigned to guard duties at the camp and would be departing in an hour. And if you wanted to know anything more, write a letter home and ask your folks because that was all. We snapped to salute. I had been hoping to meet up with Kirsty later. I was a mean lean fighting machine, but I was still flesh and blood and I must admit, I was getting pretty sweet on that girl. I felt low because it looked like I wouldn't be seeing her that day after all. So, it was with a mixture of sadness about my girl and curiosity about the abandoned base to which I was being sent, that I hurried to get kitted up. By the time we arrived, my spine was begging for mercy. I climbed tentatively out of the back of the truck and I looked around. Razor wire ran along the top of the mesh fans. Rust had darkened the metal in places, but the barbs still looked like they would gash skin clean open. A gap in the fence, which appeared to have been freshly caught, was our way in. Our Nyko lined us up and marched us in. There were only ten of us and we were all pretty raw. This was the first time I felt like I was not in a training scenario, and my nerves were tingling as we entered a warren of derelict buildings. Their windows were smeared with decades of dirt, A faded signpost fixed to the top of a wooden pole showed the way to the mess and the quartermasters and the infirmary, and I tried to imagine the place bustling with troops, orders being shouted, and announcements made over the loudspeakers, which still rose above the rooftops. They had been silent for 70 years now, I thought, and then I told myself to focus on the here and now we had reached what had clearly once been a parade ground a flagpole stood proud and empty at the far side the man next to me shielded his eyes from the sun as he peered up at it and then he muttered what are we meant to be guarding he had a point this place was a dump after being kept standing there for half an hour an officer strode out a second lieutenant Sweat patches under his armpits ruined his otherwise immaculate uniform. When he addressed us, it was clear his path here had not started in some poverty-stricken backwater. There was no slurring and no spitting as this soldier spoke. "'Good afternoon,' he said. "'I am delighted to welcome you to the latest exciting chapter in the life of Camp Adams. "'For you see, no longer shall it be a wasteland.'" but it will rise up again when a new base is constructed on these grounds. It'll be the first annex to the base that you are currently stationed at, and we have the honor to protect the site, while I have the honor to command you. He finished up and stood waiting. His expectant expression made me wonder if he thought his little speech would be met by three cheers. As it was, there was silence, punctuated only by a couple of the men breaking wind. His cheeks reddened. He cleared his throat and said, ''Yes, quite. Sergeant, please allocate the men to their sentry pose.'' And then he walked off, a little less swagger in him now. Men, we were divided up and rationed out to stand guard around the rundown remains of Camp Adams. To ensure they look forbidding on guard duty, soldiers adopt a stern expression. There is strictly no smiling.'' As I took up my position, by what looked to me like a pile of rubble, I found this came naturally. This whole thing struck me as a lousy and pointless waste of time, but I had my orders. I stared steely-eyed into the distance, and I daydreamed about a medic with the prettiest blue eyes. I saw nothing for the first tedious hours of my shift, and then a man wearing a hazmat suit walked past. It must have been like an oven inside one of them suits was my first thought. And then a concern started to tickle at me. Was there some dangerous substance here? I mean, why else would someone be wearing a hazmat suit? I suddenly felt very exposed. My worries multiplied when two more figures wearing hazmat suits appeared. They were followed by a high-mobility engineer excavator which rumbled up to the nearby rubble and started to scoop it away. I maintained my position until someone higher up than me in the army food chain dismissed me. I had no choice but to stand there and keep my fears to myself. Another officer was supervising the work of the truck and directing the men in the hazmat suits. He wore the golden oak leaf of a major and he was yelling at everyone in sight to up the pace. As the rubble was cleared... The outline of a building was revealed, and it struck me that the rubble could have been the walls and roof of whatever had once stood there. Had I wondered, the building had been demolished so that they had collapsed inwards. Explosive charges set in the right place would have achieved this. Stuck on guard duty, passively observing the hive of activity around me, I had nothing better to do than speculate if this was the case and wonder why. The excavator was scraping away more debris from the ground, the operator showing a fantastic dexterity as he worked. All the while, the major was yelling, until the excavator revealed an opening in the ground. He paused when it did, a bug-eyed look of anticipation on his face. I could see the beginning of steps in the hole, leading down to a basement level, I guessed. I watched as the men in the hazmat suits descended the steps. My imagination continued to raise, now wondering about what might be down there. The minutes ticked by. I had been stood still long enough for the desert bugs to work out that I was an easy target. There was something crawling up the inside of my trouser leg, something on spazzy next to my left ear. I swatted one hand on each pest in one swift, coordinated movement. Got you, I said under my breath and smiled. With the excavator now parked up and the major pacing, there was nothing else happening. Until the scream. It was hoarse and muffled. It had come from somewhere down in the hole. And there was no mistaking the terror in it. Whoever had called out was badly scared, and potentially in danger. I looked at the major. Figuring that he would snap into action and issue orders to go help whoever was in trouble. But he looked like he had frozen. Showing initiative can get you in serious trouble, so I hesitated. And then a second scream rose from below. I could not ignore this. I swore and ran towards it, scrabbling over the displaced rubble and on and into the hole. I was immediately operating close to blind in the darkness which enveloped me as I descended. And then I saw the beam of a torchlight and three figures huddled close to a wall. Two of the men in the hazmat suits were holding down at the other man. He was struggling and shouting, ''They're still here, still here!'' he yelled. One of the men restraining him must have heard my boots striking the ground. He whirled around and looked at me. Now ''Help us get him out of here!'' he shouted. ''Yes, sir!'' I replied and the three of us carried the distressed man back to the surface. It was only when we had placed him on the ground, away from the hole in the rubble, and that I had stepped back that it struck me. I had gone down without any protective equipment. If there was hazardous material down there, I would have been exposed to it. The Major had snapped out of whatever haze had possessed him, and had come over and was peering down at the man in the hazmat suit lying on the ground. Permission to seek medical attention, sir, I asked him. The major turned to me. After my man has been seen to, he said. My heart sank, but I wasn't surprised. When you're the lowest of the low, being at the back of the queue comes naturally. The major, meanwhile, had turned to the other men in the hazmat suits. What happened? He asked. We became separated, the first replied. The second added in. The next thing we knew, he was crying out. It sounded like he saw. The major cut him off. Need to know, he yes. hissed. Now, let's get him to a medic. I want him back on his feet and back down there ASAP. We carried him over to a jeep, adorned with the decals of the medical corp. To my surprise, Kirsty was sitting in the driver's seat. My spirit soared and I bit my tongue. I could not tell her how happy I was to see her. Not till the next time that we were alone. She climbed out of the jeep and saluted the Major and the Second Lieutenant, who must to have been alerted by these screaming as well. But he had taken his time making an appearance, I thought cynically. The Major stared at Kirsty and said, I am sharing this with you purely so that you can treat him. His suit may have been compromised, and there is the possibility that he has been exposed to the remnants of an unknown chemical agent and this is causing hallucinations. Kirsty took this in calmly, professionally. The second lieutenant looked like someone had poured a bucket of ants into his army pants. Are we talking about biological weapons? He asked. If we are, I insist we pull back to a safe distance. A sneer creased the major's face. There was an incident here in 1952 which led to the base being abandoned. The incident was and remains classified top secret, however I have been given special access to reports that talk about outstanding progress and cutting edge research that would benefit defense and offensive operations. This activity was halted by the incident and I am here to carry on where they left off. I believe the work carried out here 70 years ago can help us develop new assets which we can use to fight the enemies of our great nation. The second lieutenant looked like he was about to puke. ''What about the annex?'' he asked. ''The construction work.'' The major's voice was brutally cold when he replied. ''There is a mission which will proceed. You have your duty to do, soldier.'' He laughed, the last word hanging. Disobeying a senior officer meant a one-way trip to the guardhouse and the end of a promising military career. The second lieutenant stood attention and saluted. "Yes, sir," he said. The major returned the salute with a lazy motion of his hand and said, "Now look lively. We're going back in, as a full compliment this time." While the second lieutenant rounded up the rest of the soldiers, Kirsty checked out the man in the hazmat suit who had lost it earlier. There are no signs that he's been poisoned," she told the major when she had finished. "'but I would recommend he be removed from active duty "'until we get back to base and run tests.' "'The Major clearly did not give this any consideration. "'Nonsense,' he told her. "'If he can stand, he can work.' "'And then he turned to the driver of the excavator, "'who was leaned against his machine, smoking a cigarette. "'And you, man,' the Major hollered at him. "'You're coming with us as well.' "'The driver's expression was a picture of disdain.' but he did as he was told. We all did, and were soon making our way single-file down the steps. Only Christie was left behind. The darkness was cut open by the crisscrossing beams of torches. The three men in the hazmat suits led the way. The officers followed. The second lieutenant was visibly shaking. Was he wondering as I was what we might be breathing in? My chest felt tight and beads of sweat trickled down my face even though it was cooler down here than out on the surface. I wiped my hand across my brow and tried to focus, as we made our way along corridors lined with small rooms. Through dust-coated windows I saw lab equipment and display boards, a tweed jacket hung on a coat rack in one of the rooms, a magazine lay on a table in another, its pages curled up with age. We were crowded together, restricted. I wasn't claustrophobic, but my sense of unease was rising. There were too many unknowns, not least the classified incident. I need to know. I grumbled to myself as we shuffled forwards along yet another corridor. It stretched out into a new darkness. One of the men in hazmat suits placed his torch along its length and then cried out, I told you! I told you. The major snapped back. Do not lose discipline. If the man in the hazmat suit heard, he paid no heed. He was pointing into the corridor. It's there. Can't you see it? New torch beams reached out and yes, I could see. Movement. A dark shape. Something had passed along the end of the corridor. And whatever it was, it was heading away from us. The major had seen this as well. Follow it, he ordered. The man in the hazmat suit who had spoken was clearly having none of this. He pulled off his helmet. His skin was pale and he looked close to tears. No, he said. We have to get out of here right now. They are here. The major opened his mouth, about to throw out another command, when the first of them appeared. There... The soldier who had seen it first whispered, and we all turned. It was in one of the rooms, and bathed now in torchlight. The man who had cried out was staring wide-eyed at it, a scream stillborn in his open mouth. It was an aberration. It must to have been a man once. Before its skin had decayed and fallen away. Before its blood-red eyes had sunken into the hollows of its face. What the... One of the men said quietly... It heard and turned its hideous gaze towards him, its lower jaw hung loosely, attached only by wiry threads of flesh, but even so it seemed to be trying to speak. A hoarse and gurgling whisper drifted from its shriveled lips. "'You left us,' it said. "'Abandoned us.' We stood, shocked, paralyzed by fear. "'You left us.' It murmured in its sickening way, ''Left us while our hunger grew, but now we shall feed.'' In the wake of its words, the second lieutenant grabbed the major's arm and said, ''What do we do?'' The major did not respond. Once again, he seemed frozen, incapable to lead. I heard safety catches being released, saw barrels being raised, fingers poised... The other soldiers, my comrades, were waiting on their orders, but knew as I did that we needed to act, and act now, before it was too late. It had not moved, the thing, but its gaze seemed to have drifted, to be looking over us into the darkness that remained. Moments later, I saw why. A half dozen more of the things were coming into view, Their bodies had decayed away in places and the bone was clearly visible through gaping holes in their flesh. They moved slowly at first and then they began to run, a tide of monsters racing at us, their teeth bared and their eyes filled with hate. They dug their fingers into the arms of the first soldiers they had reached, snapped closed their jaws over shoulders, necks and hands, desperately trying to fight them away. No triggers were pulled. It was happening too quickly, and we were crammed so closely together. Soldiers began to howl with agony. One, a few feet to my left, was still screaming as one of the things tore through his scalp, and then it dashed his head against the wall, smashing open his skull. And then it began to eat. I looked away. I was shaking, terrified, and all around me it had intensified. Torches spewed their light. Illuminating grotesque acts as the things feasted. Torches lay on the floor, dropped by fingers, now twitching as more warm flesh was ripped from bone. I saw out of the corner of my eye that the Major had found a gap through everything, and he was slipping away. I followed. At that point, survival was my only goal. The Major darted into a room and was about to slam the door when he saw me coming, and he started to slam it anyway. I lashed out with my boot and forced my way in. He closed the door and dragged a table across to block it. Through the window, I could see the horror that raged on. The things had not seen us, yet. I whirled around to the major. I had always had respect for my seniors in these service before, but right then I had none left. He had failed the men under his command and they were paying with their lives. I took a deep breath and tried to think straight. I needed intel if I was going to get out of here I figured, and there was only one person who could give it to me. I grabbed the Major by the throat and pressed him against the window. Talk, I growled at him. He would not lick me in the eye as he spoke. It was all in the reports that I saw. The work's aim was to keep troops active even if killed. It succeeded. After exposure to an experimental gas, death was no longer the end. The soldiers remained an asset. They could fight on. I was horrified by what I heard, but I had to know more and asked, Those things out there, are they the soldiers that were exposed to the gas? Yes, he answered. Disgust burnt inside me. I swallowed down bile that had risen into the back of my mouth and asked, and I have been exposed to the gas. Am I going to become like them? If you were, it would have happened by now," he answered. Many traces of gas left must be negligible by this stage end. He didn't finish speaking. The glass in the window behind his head smashed, decayed hands wrapped around the Major's throat. His eyes were wide with fear and helplessness. I watched as he was dragged through the broken window, and the things fell on top of them, and they began to feed. They were in a frenzy. I would be next I knew. To them, I was nothing but raw meat. And now that they had finished with the major and were looking up at me, one of them raised itself to its full height. Fresh blood dripped from its teeth and face. It opened its mouth wider, ready to attack. The sound of the shot was followed, A heartbeat later, by the sight of the thing's head exploding into a cloud, it toppled forward and fell. The thing next to it looked over its shoulder, and a second shot filled the air, and its head was taken apart. Everything dripped on the side of the walls as it collapsed onto the ground. The cavalry, it appeared, had arrived just in time, and they were taking more of the things out one by one, with rapid, razor-sharp hits to their head. I stood there hypnotized by what I was seeing, and I couldn't speak when I saw who the Calvary was. Stepping over the bodies of the things was a young woman. Kirsty's hair and face were speckled with the remains. She smiled and said, ''That's how you kill a zombie.'' I think I smiled back just before we embraced. Minutes later, we were emerging back out of the hole, the last light of the day was bleeding into the distant horizon. I looked at Kirsty. We need to call this in, I said. But before we do, let's go absent without leave. Just long enough to gaze at a few stars and embrace being alive. I would have a lot of exploiting to do to a lot of people, and maybe I would be thrown out of the army or even imprisoned. At that moment in time, I found it hard to care. And we climbed into the jeep and drove away. The night was ours. Everything else would have to wait. I agreed to help a friend renovate his new place. I uncovered an unspeakable horror, written by N.S. Lewis. Well, I can't sleep. So I might as well tell you what happened, in case you like hearing about messed up stuff. A few months back, a buddy of mine closed on a big house right in the outskirts of town—a multi-million-dollar affair, custom built back in the '80s. We had tp it for Halloween one year, back when we were both kids from broke families. Now my friend is rich and buying it is a second home. My do carpentry so he called me up to have a look around before he pulled the trigger. I walked around, inside and out, and told him everything seemed to be in ship-shape condition. Not even a hint of mold or rot, and the guts were all nicely oiled too. The old guy who had lived and crowed, there had kept up with every little detail. What about that one room? Asked Evan. Mine knew what he was talking about with any further elaboration. There were four bedrooms and four bathrooms, not counting a finished basement. A kitchen, a living room, a study, a laundry room, a bunch of closets and etc. Everything you would expect to find in a house like that all with the highest levels of finishes. And then, there was that one weird room. It was down at the end of the hallway on the second floor. It seemed like maybe it was intended to be another bedroom. But once you went in there, you saw that it was tiled in white from floor to wall to ceiling. So then maybe you thought... It was supposed to be like a spa room or something like that, but there were no fixtures or any places for fixtures. There was a single electrical outlet and a single small hole in one of the wall tiles. Well, I don't know what the heck that's about, I admitted. Never saw anything quite like it. Yeah, it's it's bizarre. The guy's daughter said there was just this machine in here... With a tube going into the wall... They got rid of it before they listed the house... I wonder what it was all about... I shrugged... I can hardly keep up with stuff these days... They've got refrigerators that you can watch TV on now... Next, they'll have robots that sit submerged in your toilet and then pop up and wipe your butt when you're done pooping. So who knows? Anyway, putting aside that crazy room, the place looks great. Literally nothing needs to be done. Unless you want new paint, cabinets, and so forth. But honestly, everything looks very tastefully done. It's a real turnkey house if you ask me. I agree. But that room just... I don't know. I'd want to do something with it. So put that on your radar. Because I think I'm going to pull the trigger on this. And start brainstorming on what we can do with it. The answer that we came up with was to knock down a wall and open up one of these smaller bedrooms into a second master bedroom. Adding a few windows along the way. Since the room had faced the south... Working alone, I figured that the project would take me a couple of months, and I'd like those kind of projects, where I could settle in and not have to constantly go from job to job, packing up my tools every day, and getting reacquainted with a whole new site with a whole new set of headaches. But still, my enthusiasm died the first day on the job. There was just something so creepy about that room. With all those clean, white tiles covering every square inch, it felt like something that you would see in an insane asylum instead of a house where people lived at. My first order of business was to get rid of those tiles. It took a couple of days to peel them off and haul them outside, and then the room started to feel more like a construction site than an unfathomable mystery. I had something that I could work with. Breaking through the wall to the adjoining bedroom would happen near the end of the project, so we could keep dust from spreading around the house as long as possible. Well, before that, I had to tear off all the old drywall, which wasn't worth salvaging through after stripping the tiles, and to take it down to the framing, and then cut new openings for the windows and to get those installed. I'll never forget the day that I started tearing off the drywall, for as long as I live and no matter how drunk I get. I started with the exterior wall, where the windows would be going. Getting started was always fun. You just take your hammer and smash it wildly into the wall, and then you start yanking. So that's what I did pulling off chunks of sheetrock and tossing them onto the tarp in the middle of the room. I saw right away that the house was well-insulated, spray foam. That would make it a bit of a hassle adding outlets and whatnot, but it would save my buddy a heck of a lot in heating and cooling bills. Not that he was in rough shape financially. I guess I just got satisfaction from seeing a tight, well-built house. It was right around the middle of that exterior wall behind the drywall where I found the first indication of that room's previous purpose. There was a small tube there pressed against the insulation, running up towards the ceiling. It was a clear tube, but stained dark inside. What the heck was that, I wondered. I had never encountered anything quite like it, It looked like maybe somebody had been running motor oil through it, or something like that. I didn't really know. I figured the best way to get answers was to keep tearing the room apart. Soon, I found a second tube. This one didn't have the brown coloring, but it did have a few droplets of clear liquid beaded up along its length. I knew without a doubt that I was going to find something terrible. I don't know how to explain it, other than pure animal instinct, but I didn't know what it was. I ripped off another chunk of the wall. There, less than a foot away from my face, were ten human toes, complete with long, gnarly yellow toenails. They were half buried in the insulation, sort of just poking out. I backed up and probably said something like, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. Without realizing that I had reached for it, I had my phone in my hand. Called the police. But then I hesitated. For some unspeakably stupid reason, I hesitated I guess it was as simple as morbid curiosity. If I didn't peel back that wall myself, then I might never know what was really back there. It was a human body, obviously, but whose and what were those tubes? If I handed it over to the cops, I would be shut out of there while they did their work. They would take off the rest of the wall, Maybe they wouldn't tell the public what was back there for months or years or ever, But I had to know. For whatever reason or non-reason, I just had to know. I wiggled another section of drywall loose, gently now, trying to take as big a piece as I could intact. I got about half a sheet loose, four by four. Now I knew a lot more, or maybe a lot less. I took off my respirator and I puked. It was a woman, I could figure that much. She was naked and I saw now where the tubes had led. The stained one into her stomach and the other one into her, I don't want to say. Jesus Christ, what the heck is this? I had my phone in my hand again, but then I dropped it because I was shaking so bad. The tubes. There were beads of water still in one of them, which means that she's alive, or was recently. I forgot the phone and frantically tore away the rest of the wall. It came apart in a mess of dust in small chunks because I was in a frenzy. Finally, I made it up to her head. She had another tube stuck in her mouth, leading up towards the roof. Her flesh was sagging off of her face, like it was sagging everywhere else, as if in a slow and desperate attempt to escape the world. Her eyes were wide opened and milky white. She's dead, I thought. And then she blinked. Man that friends is when I called the police and they took over her. If you're wondering who the heck that woman was and why she was in the wall while well, join the club, I'll tell you the rest of what I know, or at least what I think, for whatever good that'll do. First, the nitty-gritty. I think that poor woman was kept behind that wall for a very long time. The tubes to carry her waste away probably ran down and joined the main sewer line the tube leading outside. I figured this out by having a look around the house while the police were busy inside, hooked up to the gutter system. So she drank water when it rained. My best guess is that she was fed through that machine that the previous owner's daughter had removed. It must have ground up food and shot it through the tube going from the room into the wall. Or something like that. I haven't spoken with the daughter, and I don't intend to, but she almost certainly didn't know what the heck it was that she had removed from the house. And if I'm right, that means the woman in the wall, she hadn't had any food in months, unless by some chance an ant had crawled down her throat. As for the man who had owned the house before my friend had bought it, he was just some guy. A well-off guy. A guy who owned several businesses around town and was always a part of this and that event and the Chamber of Commerce and all that stuff. Outwardly, a very respectable citizen, but inwardly, an absolute demon Assuming that he was the one who put the woman in the wall, I don't even know that part of it. If he did, then he would have had to hook up all that stuff himself. He would have had to at least put the drywall up, if not the tile. Plus, the woman was half encased in spray foam insulation, which isn't usually a DIY project. But I suppose if you're going to be evil and crazy enough to do something like that in the first place, a few days worth of manual labor is the price that you have to pay, even if you're rich. Anyway, he had to at least know about it, since, again, I'm assuming I'm right about the machine, somebody had to keep feeding that woman, and it was his house. I don't know... I've been drinking and my mind is starting to creep down all of these different alleyways... Starting to... uh, Heck... I haven't stopped... It was a week ago that I found the woman... And I guess that I must have slept at some point since then... I just don't really remember it... And now you have it too... I guess the only thing to say at this point is if you're able to wake up each morning and not find yourself literally trapped inside of a wall with tubes coming in and out of you then you better consider yourself lucky. That's the thing I'm telling myself anyway. Thanks for listening. In the darkness of winter in northern Alaska, there is no place to hide. Ridden by, with bite. I was washed up. My marriage was a disaster. I was one more mistake away from losing my job at the plant. I was drinking myself unconscious to forget my problems and waking up suffocating under new regrets. I was hanging on by a thread. One November morning, the thread was cut. I had passed out on the sofa at home after beginning drinking on a Friday evening as soon as work had let out. I remembered the first bar that I went in and how good that first drink tasted. It was a shot of rye, neat, and a lit of fire in my belly. It felt good, so I ordered another. After that, there was nothing Until my eyelids opened and the pain punched me in the face, I groaned. Hangovers are a lesson that getting drunk is a mistake. I had never been much for learning. But at that moment in time, I was all for taking on board the fact that I had messed up. I would have done anything not to feel like that again. I would have gone on the wagon. I would have started eating healthy food. I would have even joined a gym. And maybe I would have. Maybe that was the moment my life could have been turned around. Only as I lay there reeling from the hurt in my head that I had spread to my guts, I realized that someone was standing over me. I tried to focus, and the blurry shapes rearranged themselves into the love of my life. Mary Lynn had never been a homecoming queen, but she had taken my breath away the first time that I saw her. She had been kicking the wheel of her car because it had been flat, and once I had got the oxygen flowing steady into my lungs again, I had gone over and, real gallant-like, fixed it for her. We were married twelve months later. She was nineteen and I was twenty, which was far too young. I was 29 going on 60 that morning as I squinted up at her. I braced myself for her to start yelling at me, which was the main way that we had been communicating for a while. But then I saw the tears streaking her makeup. What is it? I managed to say and I tried to sit up. The pain transferred its attention to a point just behind my eyes. I shed a tear myself and I blinked. "'Look here,' she said and pointed at the TV. The screen showed the inside of a store. It had been trashed real bad. The contents of its shelves were scattered across the floor. Broken glass lay in pools of a murky-looking liquid. A strip lamp hung down, just about attached to the ceiling by a stray wire, and the front window was smashed.' A jagged, edged hole had been opened in the middle. And then a newsreader's bland voice told the viewers, The shocked owner was met by this sight when he went to open up his family business at 5am this morning. Police would like to speak to this man who was captured on the shops at CCTV. A fuzzy image appeared. A man, unshaven and wild-eyed, standing amid the wreckage. It was me. I looked at Mary Lynn. I don't remember, I began. She turned away. Get out, she had said, and don't come back. If I had been stronger, I would have gone to the police station and turned myself in. I would have taken what I deserved for my unacceptable drunken behavior. But all I could drudge up inside me as I stumbled out into the street... Was a spiraling sense of self disgust and fear. I lost my wife. I would lose my job. The prospect of prison terrified me. I needed to get away before someone recognized me on the rolling TV news and gave the police my name. That was all that I could think of. I went to the coach station and bought a ticket that would take me away from everything that I had ever known. It took five days to reach the last stop on the line, and then I started hitching rides from there. The drivers liked to talk. One man who smelt worse than I did after a week in the same clothes told me that he knew a place that was hiring if I was looking for work. It's a no-questions-asked type of place, he told me. He smoked constantly as he drove, and kept his window wound down to flick the ash out, I was shivering with cold, and my teeth were chattering when I replied. It sounds like my type of place. How much further is it? Well, he answered, pausing to light yet another cigarette. <laughs> you need to keep heading north till you hit the Arctic Circle, and then keep on going, behind a town that old-timers like me still call Barrow. There are no signposts for the place I'm talking about but it's as good a hiding place as any for a man who's running away. He turned and looked at me and gave me a wink. I shivered some more, and this time it was not because of the cold. I hadn't told this man about what had happened, I hadn't breathed a word of it to anybody. I guess I must have just showed it my face. He dropped me off at an intersection, a gas station, a diner, and a motel huddled together around the road as if they were trying to keep me warm in the cold. By now, the bitter temperature felt like it had seeped into my bones, and I wasn't sure if I would ever feel warm again. I checked into the motel. It was only the early afternoon, but the sunlight was already bleeding out. The further north that I had traveled, the shorter the days had become. That day had been fleeting, and darkness obscured the distance as I stood looking out of the motel room window, When I had registered using a false name and paid with almost the last of my cash, I had told the motel clerk that I was hoping to head to the place north of Barrow that was taking on workers. He had looked at me with a mix of disgust and sorrow but had said nothing. The next morning, I was about to head out to the diner for what could be my last meal for a while due to my financial plight when the clerk said, There's a big fellow at the diner tucking into a mountain of grits who works at the place you're looking for. That's really the path that you want to travel. A man with his feet in the ground would have heard alarm bells at that moment. But I merely thanked him and strode across to the diner. The light and the warmth I felt inside were welcome. And the smell of coffee a lifeline. Most of the tables were empty but I wandered over to one that was already occupied. Describing somebody as a big fellow up here was a bit like describing a biker as... That fellow in a leather jacket... But I was confident that I had found the man. He must have been close to seven feet tall. His face showed years of hard living. His head was shaved and he had a single crimson tear tattooed beneath his left eye. I asked him, Do you mind if I join you? He nodded and continued to shovel his breakfast into his mouth. I put it to him direct what I wanted and after he had finished eating, he said, You got that look about you of a man who wants a place to hole up while trouble makes its way by. This made me vow not to play poker with anyone for a long while. A few minutes in my company was clearly all it took to read me. So I'll try not to dissuade you. The big fellow went on. I'm a foreman at the warehouse. If you want a job I'm willing to give you a chance. You can ride out with me. Mighty grateful, I said and I followed him out to his truck. He moved with an easy grace that bellied his size and did not seem to notice the cold. A few minutes in the wind, which had got up while we were in the diner, was enough to make me feel physically sick. My hand shook so bad as I tried to do it my seatbelt that I gave up. Observing this, the big fellow grinned. There's an old fur-lined coat in the office of the warehouse. "'If it's not got up and walked out due to all the fleas living in it, you can borrow it.' I smiled. I was so cold that my face muscles were locking up, so it probably looked like a grimace. The big fellow kept grinning and started the engine. We drove through the darkness. There was a brief interlude of daylight, and the landscape it revealed was bleached to features. This was a barren, snow-covered land." Darkness soon returned and the big fellow turned the headlights on to full beam. After long hours, lights came into view in the distance. As we came closer, I saw that they were coming from a building. It was vast. The lights were fixed into the ground and ran the length of the building as far as I could see. There was nothing comfortable or welcoming about this display. We rattled to a stop in front of the building and the big fellow turned to me. Follow me, he said. Reluctantly, I left the shelter of the truck. The wind of earlier had dropped and there was a captivating stillness. The air was freezing. I could feel it biting into my skin. This was no time to be hanging around. I hurried after the big fellow as fast as I could. He was punching a combination into a keypad by a door and I didn't want to be left outside. The door opened and he let me pass and then pulled the door locked behind us. We entered an open, well-lit space that ran around three-quarters of the length of the building. I would estimated it. Stacks of containers stood here and there. There were no other people around and as I kept pace with the big fellow, our footsteps were the only sound. At the end of the open space, we reached a partition wall. He punched in another code by another door and he stepped through. A series of small rooms lay on either side of a narrow corridor. "'That's my office,' the big fellow said, pointing at one of the doors. A window opened out into the corridor and I could see a desk and a chair, folders, books and drawers. No sign of a laptop or other electronic devices.' A whiteboard was covered in writing divided into columns by hand-drawn lines. I was about to ask what exactly it was they did at the warehouse, but then I remembered what the man who had first told me about this place had said. It's a no-questions-asked type of place. And the big fellow had not asked my name, had not asked for a social security number or anything. I figured I needed to return the favor if I wanted to work here. That did not stop me from wondering, of course, and I almost immediately thought that there must be something illegal happening. We had reached a small room with a folded bed and a couple of bare shelves. You'll be sleeping here, the big fellow said, try and get some rest. You'll be pulling 12-hour shifts and the first one starts in under 6. I'll leave that coat just outside, and with that he headed off. I lay on the bed and didn't think of I would get a moment's sleep. My mind was racing about exactly what shady things were taking place. Was I at a distribution hub for hard drugs? Or maybe their stock and trade was illegal weapons? Or chemicals sold in bulk and in no way approved by the FDA? Whatever was going on, the location meant that there would be no prying eyes. It felt to me, though, as if the warehouse was locked up for the winter. Come spring, the network would reopen. But for now, the building was still, enveloped in a wilderness beyond which a different world existed. One of bustling cities in the internet, of Friday night drinks and shopping malls. One which was just a memory. Rise John shine, boy, a voice said and I opened my eyes. I must have drifted off after all. The man who was standing, looking down at me, appeared to be in his 40s. He wore a long coat which reached down to his calves. His hair was completely gray. A fat scar ran the length of one of his cheeks. As with the big fellow's a tear tattoo, no questions meant how he got this had to remain a mystery. That was probably for the best, I decided. Now that I had had time to think, I was realizing what a jerk I had been, running all the way out here to this strange place because I had panicked and freaked out. Before, I had been looking at charges for criminal damage, something like that. I was no lawyer, but now I had the feeling that I was a big part player in some major operation. As soon as I could, I would get out of there, get myself home and face the music. Scarcheek clearly did not share the big fellow's habit of smiling easy. "'You're going to shift it, boy,' he said with a sneer. "'I've got to show you the ropes before I get my head down. Come on.' He pointed one of his thumbs at the door. I went with the flow. He took me outside where he started by showing me the generator sheltered around the rear of the building. "'This beast is more important than your mama,' he told me. It's connected to a control panel inside where we set the levels for the exterior and the internal lights. And without it, we got no light. Apart from in the hours of daylight, I chipped in. He looked at me like I was a complete idiot. Boy, he said, we're in the polar night now. The sun has set for the last time for two months and it'll be dark 24 hours a day for the next 67 days. I wrapped my arms around myself. I was mighty thankful for the coat the Big father had left for me. It was worn and filthy, but it was fur-lined and had taken the edge off the cold when I had first stepped outside. as I took on board what Scarcheek had said, the comfort offered by the coat seemed to fall away. There was no way that I could handle two months of darkness, apparently oblivious to my growing misery, but more likely simply not caring. Scarcheek began to list a daily routine of maintenance checks that I would have to do. And then he said, And when the road can be used again, we... What? I spluttered. Again, he gave me the, What kind of fool are you looking, inside? We're going nowhere until the sun rises again in January. He carried on giving me instructions, but I was no longer listening, and by the time he left me to begin my shaft... My mood was as bleak as my surroundings, and I worked through my checklist without paying much attention to what I was doing. One of my tasks was to do a manual check of all the exterior lighting. I stepped outside to be met by the glare of the lights. They showed the face of the building in all its grimness and reached out for dozens of feet across the empty, snow-covered ground illuminating nothing. I began to trudge around the building. I started off by trying to walk with the wind in my back, but I soon abandoned that. The way the wind swirled meant my face kept being exposed, and no which way I turned. It was pretty cruel. After it felt like an age of this punishment, I had almost completed my circuit of the building and was getting up the courage to take a hand out of my coat pocket, to enter the door security code, when I felt that I noticed a movement in the distance. Was there something out there? skirting the edges of the lights. Yes. I caught sight of a silhouette, a shape moving rapidly on all fours. It must, I guess, have been a wolf, maybe a bear. I had no idea what kind of creatures lived in this bleak and freezing wilderness. Mean ones, I decided, and not ones that I wanted a close encounter with. I turned to the keypad and hurriedly punched the coat in. Back inside, I was working through the rest of the list when the big fellow walked up. I noticed that he had a holster on his belt, and wondered why anyone would be carrying all the way out here. Once more, though, no questions won the day. He smiled at me and said, I'm Glad to see you're doing such a great job. Sure, I said morosely, though I wish you had told me I would be stuck here for mines. He smiled. You'll make a good wage while you're here he said, and with no channels to communicate with the outside world, there'll be no one hassling us. I would have thought that suited you just fine. Yeah, I replied. We're living the dream. The three of us and whatever it was I saw outside. The smile stayed on his face, but there was a harder edge to his expression when he said, They're a creature that's particular to these parts. I've only ever seen them from a way off. But even so, I would say, they are ugly SOBs. They hide from the light and they embrace the darkness. Now there is no natural light because of the polar night. They roam freely through the wilderness. I was really not liking the sound of this. So much so that I ditched the no-questions approach. Are they dangerous? I asked. Not as dangerous as one of these. The big fellow sat and patted his holster. And Now that the polar night has set in, you should be properly equipped. Come with me and I'll get you kitted out. Thank you, I said quietly, uncertainly. A while later, my shift over, I trudged back to my sleeping quarters. I passed by a scar cheek who was just beginning his shaft. You should have warned me about the creatures, I muttered. A sneer drifted onto his face before he told me. They won't come near you while the lights are on, and if there's a problem now, well, you can just draw an aim. They're critters and we are men. We are the alphas. You got that boy? I glared at him, but did not reply. He laughed to himself and added, Now, me and my best friends are going to check on the generator, like a desperado in an old cowboy movie. He swept back the sides of his long coat and I saw the pair of holsters attached to his belt. And then he carried on his way. I was frustrated with the big fellow. And I was really starting to loathe a scar cheek. And I was only one day into the polar night. I managed an hour's sleep in total and felt like a total wreck as I started my second shaft. I began by checking the exterior lights... Each glowed reassuringly as I walked past them, till I reached the last one, which was flickering. I tried to think back to what Scarcheek had told me that I should do if this happened, and I drew a blank. Me must have run over this while I was feeling sorry for myself and not listening. I tapped the perspect casing of the light with my knuckle and told it not to disrespect me. I'm the alpha boy, I said. Somehow, my tapping had done the trick and the light went back to emitting a steady beam. Laughing at how low I had sunk, I decided to go and find the big fellow and tell him what had happened. Maybe there was a problem which I needed a proper fix. I made my way to the door and was just about to enter the security code to open it when the faulty light flickered once again and then it went out completely. And then the one next to it did the same. Dang, I said, and then stood and watched, open-mouthed, as one by one, all the lights that I could see died, leaving me in the dark, and I wasn't alone. There was something moving out there, one of the creatures, I was sure of it, unless it was my imagination. I told myself to focus. All I needed to do was enter the security code and then I could head inside, find the big fellow in Scarcheek, and one of them would know what to do. Only I couldn't see past the tip of my nose. I would need to do this by touch. Not a problem. I assured myself and passed what I thought were the right keys. But nothing happened. I swore under my breath, and I turned around. I had heard a new sound. Snow crunching underfoot. Under paw, I corrected myself, which really did not help. I returned my attention to the keypad. I was shivering badly now as well as operating blind. I pressed again. There were five numbers and then the hash key. Wrong again. I cursed. I tried to enter the code a third time. The sounds behind me were getting louder. There was no denying it. No blaming it on the wind or my imagination. There was something moving out in the darkness and it was heading my way. I placed my fingertips on the keys. They were cold metal. So cold that it felt like they were burning my skin. I ran my finger along the keys ignoring the pain and counting out where I was and one by one pressed the numbers, ending with the hash key. There was a click. I turned the handle and the door opened. I exhaled, stepped inside and smiled. The lights were still on in here. I began to run and began to shout The lights have gone off outside The big fellow was the first to appear Slow down, he said What are you saying about the lights? Flickered, I gasped And then they went out And then back on and then nothing It's all dark I hadn't seen Scarachie come out of his sleeping quarters But there he was What have you done, boy, you idiot? He snapped Nothing, I protested They just went off one by one The big fellow held up his hands. Easy there, he said. It was just a glitch. Some problem in the system which can be easily fixed. I nodded. That sounded good to me. Problem sorted. But then I remembered. There was something out there, I said. It was coming towards me. Ah yes, the creatures. The big fellow said. Let's not worry about them. They will keep the darkness outside and try not to come in here while the lights inside are still on. He smiled his by now familiar smile and I started to feel better. And then he added, And of course because the doors are closed, I can't get in anyway. I stopped feeling relieved, started panicking again as I tried to remember, had I closed the door behind me. I swore, oh, What is it boy? Scarry cheek asked and his eyes narrowed. I think I left the door open, I replied. Ah, you heap of worthless junk. Scarcheek spat these words out and then flicked back his coat and, with a lightning-quick movement, drew. I got this, he said and began to walk in the direction of the door that I had left open. You go with him, the big fellow said. Give him backup, I'll be along in a minute. And then he made his way towards his office. I did the last thing that I wanted to do. I headed back towards the open door and the things waiting in the darkness. I got there to find Scar Cheek standing in front of the open door, both of his sidearms blazing. He was firing out into the darkness and loving it. "My yeehaw!" he cried when he ran out of ammo, and then reloaded and let it rip again. I wanted to cover my ears and I wanted him to stop, but he wouldn't have listened to me. Thankfully, a big fellow caught us up. That's enough, he yelled when Scarcheek had once again emptied his chambers. Scarcheek scowled but did not argue. The big fellow had brought a torch with him, and he moved towards the open door and turned it on. A powerful beam cut through the darkness outside and revealed a hideous scene. Bodies lay across the ground, their blood staining the snow. I realized that for the first time... The creatures were not wolves or bears or any animal that I had known existed. They were around six foot long and they were hairless. Their skin was very pale, but lined with darker veins which protruded. I could see the outline of their ribs as well, the sharp lines of their shoulder blades. They had paws but no ears or tails. From the way they had fallen after being cut down by Scarcheek, I couldn't see their face. And there was more of them out there, still very much alive. I could make out dark, restless shapes keeping just out of reach of the torch beam. You killed them, I whispered horrified. I sure did, boy, Scarchik replied. That's what you get for loitering around these parts. And then he turned to the big fellow and said, Isn't that right? Instead of agreeing, the big fellow sighed and said, You hothead. You done shut up my truck as well. The engines hold and it'll take a heap of fixing. And then the big fellow sighed again and closed the door. My shoulders slumped in relief and I managed a small smile. At least now the door was closed. There was no way for the creatures to get in, even if the inside lights had failed as well. Let's go see what the problem is, the big fellow said. And I was happy to follow him. The control panel was on a wall at the far side of the main open space, just before the partitions began. Dozens of switches and dials were set into it. The big fellow studied it and then frowned. It's a connection issue, he said. Most likely a cable has come loose. I jumped in with a question laced with hope. But can we fix it? We sure can, he answered. Once the connection is back, all you need to do is make sure the lights come back on and you just gotta flip this switch here. He placed a hand on a red lever in the center of the panel. It's real simple. Great, I said. So, where's the loose cable? Outside, he replied. My guts tightened and all of a sudden, my mouth was so dry that I couldn't swallow. When I said, What? What? The word came out so quietly that I doubt either of them heard. They were already busy anyway. Scarcheek was reloading, and the big fellow was bringing out two more of the torches and holding them out. I wanted to protest to say, there's no way I'm going out there, but instead I meekly took one of the torches from him. Once again, I must have been broadcasting my feelings. The big fellow looked down at me, looked me in the eye and said, has anyone ever told you you have a real negative attitude? Scarachie chuckled at this. I had no reply and I trailed after them as they headed back to the door that had been safely closed 15 minutes before. It opened silently and holding their torches in front of them, they stepped out. I followed. The first thing that I did was almost fall over one of the bodies. I steadied myself. Move in circles as you walk, pointing your torch forward, the big fellow told me. That way, the creatures will keep their distance. Uh-huh, I replied and spanned slowly round in a circle. The beam of my torch picked out yet more of the creatures as they flinched and moved back, too quickly for me to see more than a pale limb. I kept circling and I moved forwards as I did so. The light continued to keep them at bay. The mouth of one was momentarily illuminated for a second, and I glimpsed at bare teeth, and then it slipped back into the cover of darkness. Our progress is slow, tortuously so to me, but eventually we had reached the cluster of cables and equipment, at the heart of which sat the generator. You two give me cover, the big fellow said, and as Scarcheek and I created crisscrossing barriers of light, he got to work. After 10 minutes or so, he grunted. I think that's fixed it, he said. Now, let's get back inside. And we retreated back towards the door. It's not far now, I said, and then I stumbled, fell, and I landed on the body that I had tripped over. My torch hit the ground, the beam pointing impotently upwards. The beams of the other's torches hit me in the eye. They had seen what had happened and both cursed me. I'm sorry, I said, I'm sorry. The body was still warm. its skin hard where my hands touched it as I struggled to push myself upward. Until I felt something tug at my leg. And then a shot rang out, close and loud. I flinched but managed to grab hold of my torch and swing it up towards my leg. Where I saw the body of a creature. The top of its skull had been opened and it wore a mask of red. It twitched and then fell still. I felt something pulling at my collar and I looked up. It was the big fellow, and he was hauling me to my feet with one hand. In his other, he held the weapon he had used to dispatch the creature before it had bitten me. Next to him, cheek was moving his torch rapidly in a circle encompassing the three of us. A solid wall of shadowy figures encircled us, held back only by the light I knew. "'Get back to back. We rotate together,' the big fellow said. "'I did as I was told, and we resumed our journey of a few feet to the door and the sanctuary beyond. "'The big fellow entered the code, and I saw the light inside as he opened the door, "'and I followed him into the warehouse. "'Scarcheek lingered. "'The big fellow hissed at him. "'What are you doing?' "Ah, oh, one more for luck,' he said and drew. "'I saw one of the dark shapes fall.' Scarcheek, grinning and lowering his torch as he turned and stepped towards the door, and then his body tensed up. His eyes turned upwards and his knees buckled. He fell face forwards onto the ground and I saw the gash that ran the length of his spine. I saw extended claws and they were razor sharp, tipped with red, and then the creature scurrying away from the light of my torch. We have to help him. I yelled and lurched forwards towards Scarcheek. Leave him, you fool, the big fellow shouted. He's dead. We need to get this door closed. We can't just leave him, I yelled back. No, the big fellow screamed the word at me, and I retreated back through the open door, just as the inside lights flickered and then failed. It was dark inside now as well. I cried out. You didn't fix it. You made it worse. Ah, screw you. The big fellow screamed. I turned my torch towards him and saw that he was trying to close the door but couldn't. It was because the creatures were coming in. I scrambled backwards. My torch made patterns on the floor where it hung in my faltering grasp. I swung it back upwards to where the big fellow was. The creatures jumping up at him were reaching his throat easily. As big as he was, their claws were slashing at him and red spurted out. The light of my torch made them break away and I hurried towards the big fellow. He was staggering, holding his right hand to his wounds, and red flowed through his fingers. With his other hand, he pointed his torchlight at the open door. Keeping more of the creatures from coming in, I realized. I began to turn my torch in a circle. The switch, I said. Will it still work? He looked at me and tried to speak. Blood bubbled inside his mouth and then began to spill out. His legs buckled and he fell. I stood there helplessly and looked down at his body. My hand was shaking so much, the beam from my torch jerked about crazily. I forced myself to hold it steady and once more began to move it in a circle. I saw teeth bared, claws raised, and the arched backs of the creatures as they approached me. I saw them in glimpses in moments as the beam of light passed over them. They were ten feet away, eight, I could not keep them all at bay. In seconds, they would be on me, and I would be done. Cut to shreds, I turned and ran. The beam played across the floor as I raced towards the control panel. Behind me, I could hear them running, bearing down on me, but I could not look back. I could not stop. I ran and I was struggling to breathe. Sweat flew from me and I ran and I ran for my life. I threw myself at the control panel and, guided by the torchlight, I found the switch. If it worked, I had a chance. If it didn't, I was history. These thoughts raced as I grabbed the switch and I pulled it down. The lights flickered and then burst into life. I turned to look back at the creatures. They were everywhere. Hundreds of them crouched on all fours throughout the warehouse. Their eyes were red and I realized helplessly exposed to the glaring light as they had in the eyelids. Their snouts were long and as pale as the rest of their foreign bodies and everywhere their veins stood raised. And the ones nearest me, I swear that I could see the blood pulsing in them. They bared their teeth and reared up but they were raging out an enemy that I could not overcome. The light. And they rushed from the warehouse, scrambling over each other to get out. I waited until the last one had gone, and then made my way back to the open door and I stepped outside. I could see that the lights around the exterior of the building were working again, and the creatures that had come so close to taking my life were almost out of sight. That was two weeks ago. It is December the 2nd and I walk through the deserted warehouse, the light illuminating my every step and all I have left to do is think. The polar night ends on January 23rd. The sun will rise. There are still 51 days to go until then. Outside, the darkness awaits. I discovered a street of monsters that appears every leap year. Written by Marcus Starr I was nine years old when I discovered the street of monsters. I was walking home from school when it happened, daydreaming away. I must have taken a wrong turn. It was late February at the dead of winter. The menacing wind was blowing me backwards as I trudged through the cold sleet and snow. I turned on to what should have been my street. Right away, I sensed something was wrong, but I was too cold to even care, and besides, I was just a kid. My only concern was to wrap my hands around my Nintendo controller, cozy up on the couch, and get lost in the wonderful world of Zelda. The wind stopped abruptly. This was a nice change. Without the insistent chatter of wind fighting my frostbitten face, I was able to see further on ahead. What first caught my attention, more like raised the tiny hairs on my prepubescent arms, were the houses. They were watching me, their callous whispers mocking me as I tramped across the icy sidewalk. A car pulled up, a classic roadster from the 1930s. It reminded me of my sister's ZZ Top Record Eliminator. The driver got out and he waved. And that's when I knew I was in trouble. The man, and I use this term very loosely, was easily seven feet tall and as slim as a pole. He wore a pinstripe, double breasted suit and a matching fedora, and enough jewelry to satisfy a hip hop artist. His muscular face was finely chiseled, his smile deeply disturbing. My stomach tightened at the very sight of him. This was a bad man. I returned the wave and I kept walking. I stole a sideways glance just to make sure that he wasn't sneaking up on me. He wasn't. Instead, he moved effortlessly toward his picturesque suburban home and he had morphed into it. His feet never touched the ground. I picked up the pace. It still hadn't dawned on me yet that this wasn't my street. Another car pulled up. It looked like the car from Scarface, which my sister made me watch against my will. I put my head down and I kept walking, shaking in my winter boots. The car haunted me. Aruga! But it didn't look back. The driver shouted, NAKED! in a voice so gruff that it would make the Marlboro Man blush. I bolted. I ran flat out until I reached the end of what should have been Sanderson Drive, my street, and I was greeted by the bone-chilling wind and the sudden onslaught of darkness. My heart was a jack-in-the-box, ready to evacuate. My mother's car arrived to save me, though. And I jumped inside, bringing with me a bucket of tears and no clear answer to her plethora of questions. Apparently, I had been gone for hours. I tried telling her about the bad man, but it all just came out as a gibberish. Days went by and life moved on. and The memories of that bad man and his mobster mobile faded into oblivion. That is, until four years later... By now, I'm 13 and chock full of teenage insolence It's February 29th, 1992 The day is drab and dreary Smells like chain spirit is blasting on my Walkman and I'm walking home Unbeknownst to me, the street of monsters had returned The roadster pulled up next to me, letting the car idle its ugly roar The driver waved me over Memories of my scared nine-year-old self returned like an unwanted guest. This was the same man as before. The bad man. I tried walking and failed. My skinny legs remained frozen in their tracks. Aren't you gonna wave back? The monster man asked as he had exited the vehicle. His voice sounded like machine gun fire. I shook my head, avoiding his terrible gaze. The thing's face twisted into a skull, and before I knew it, he was towering over me, seething. By thirteen, I was quite tall for my age, but nowhere near as tall as this well-tailored creep. When he touched my shoulder, a million screams of terror trampled across my soul. My legs buckled. I collapsed. Another roadster pulled up. Four men wearing matching garments spilled out, standing tall as mountains. Their faces were ugly. These were bad men, and they meant harm. They moved effortlessly my way, grinning like gamblers. Meanwhile, the bad man dragged me to my feet. The thing nestled its bony fingers into my shoulder blade, and it pressed down hard. The pain was egregious. Without a second thought, I kicked my boot down on its foot with the full force of fear, and then I booked it. As I ran, I noticed the peculiarity of the houses. They were alive, and regarding me as one might watch a sporting event, betting on whether or not I would come out alive. "'You'll never make it, you nincompoop.' A beige bungalow said in a smoky voice. A chorus of agreement followed. Fortunately, I did make it off the street, right back to where I started. Up ahead, my proper street appeared out of nowhere. So I hightailed it home, crawling into bed and I wept like a baby. The next morning, I noticed the claw marks covering my badly bruised shoulder Soon enough, those marks were discovered by my parents, who rushed me to the hospital. Nothing came of it, though. Those marks lasted all summer. I thought they would never go away. Sometime later, I told my best friend Michael about these Street of Monsters. Naturally, Michael thought that I was crazy, and ended up spreading rumors about me which spread like wildfire throughout the halls and cafeteria. Needless to say, I never told another soul about that nefarious street of mobster-clad ghouls. I kept the street of monsters a secret. I was with my high school sweetheart the next time that the street appeared, four years later to the day. We had just gotten off of the bus and turned onto my street, eager for some alone time before my parents got home. By now, I had forgotten about these street of monsters. Likewise, I had forgotten that it was a leap year, although I hadn't made that connection yet. These things didn't mean much to my 17-year-old self at the time. We had had a record-setting snowfall that week. My town was buried under a mountain of snow. It was difficult to see your hand in front of your face, let alone some strange street with talking houses and bad guys who drove cool cars and floated across the snow as they walked. As soon as the car pulled up, everything came flooding back. And that's when I made the connection. Leap here. How could I be so stupid? And then I freaked out. Run, I said, grabbing Trisha's tiny hands under her brightly colored mittens. Trisha thought that I was being cute. I wasn't. Nay. The monster shouted in a bullet-ridden voice. He stepped out of the vehicle, and hovered towards us, dressed to the nines. My girlfriend fainted. "'Trish!' I shouted, desperately trying to lift her. But instead, I slipped and fell flat on my face. "'Gotcha!' We were yanked to our feet. I didn't trust the way the bad man was looking at my girlfriend." Two more roadsters pulled up and a team of tall men surrounded us. They were all impeccably dressed, their faces smeared with scorn. The amazing part was how the snow seemed to pass through them, like holograms. And despite my futile attempts at stopping them, the bad men took my girlfriend. I watched in horror as they stuffed her into the back of the old ford. The trunk slammed shut like a chrome casket, and the monsters sped away, vanishing under furious fumes of carbonated clouds. Suddenly, I was all alone. The street was a morgue. I tried turning around, but in doing so, the street spun with me, making me nauseous. Apparently, there was only one way to go. Straight. This can't be real. Everything about this street felt wrong. If only I had fought back. I could have prevented those tough guys from taking my girlfriend. Tears froze to my pale and pimpled face like ice on a ring. A low murmur was coming from the houses. They were mocking me. Garage doors moving up and down, laughing and chuckling away. And mailboxes flapping their lids, heckling me. While I slump-shouldered my way off this nefarious street, I fully expected my girlfriend to be waiting for me. She wasn't. I soaked home solemnly, wondering what my next move should be. And Trish's parents hated me as it was. They thought that I was a bad influence on her. It's not surprising, Her father swore up and down that he would have me killed, but not before making me really pay for it. I spent the following year under constant police surveillance, I won't go into details because even to this day, it's too traumatizing for me. Everybody in town believed that I had killed my girlfriend and hit her body, and why not? I was the last person known to be with her. I tried explaining the Street of Monsters, but of course, no one believed a word that I said. Whenever somebody searched for it, the street wasn't there. Apparently, the Street of Monsters only appears on February 29th, and only to those unfortunate enough to wander through it. It makes me wonder how many other kids have gone missing on this day. I don't remember much of what came next. As my mind melted into a cocktail of antipsychotic drugs, my parents never looked at me the same since. Heck, they still don't. My life was ruined in every way. I kept thinking that Trisha would return, but she never did. After high school, I left that scandalous town and never looked back. Trisha's body was never found. I've recently moved back to that innocuous town. And as luck would have it, I bought a house in my old neighborhood. My job offered me a sweet deal in the place, so I really couldn't pass it up. Deep down, I knew that this was a bad idea, like the past was trying to catch up with me. But my rational mind convinced me otherwise. There must be a reasonable explanation for what had happened so long ago, whatever it may be. Which leads me to February 29th, 2020. On the cusp of a major pandemic, no less. The morning was cold and stark. I was out walking my dog. After my bull Mastiff did his business, we passed by my old street. And that's when Capone started growling. Those terrifying childhood memories started nagging the outer limits of my mind. Ready to escape if I let them. Stupidly, I rejected those warnings, and we turned down Sanderson Drive. I even checked the street sign, just to be sure. I sighed. Everything was okay, obviously. Monster streets don't exist, not when you're an adult. Capone led the way. As I was studying the houses, checking their authenticity, a car pulled up beside us. I recognized it straight away. It was that old Ford Model A, and it still looked shiny and new. When the driver's window rolled down, the bad man leaned down and waved. His stone-black eyes filled me with knives. Capone was cautious, his tail glued between his stubby legs. The bad man got out of the car and glided effortlessly toward me his feet only inches above the snow-covered ground. This can't be real, I told myself. No way, but it felt real. Real as the grotesque grin stamped across that monster's face. By now, Capone was going ballistic. I let go of his leash, and he charged. To my surprise, the monster's face recoiled. The thing flew towards his house like a bat out of hack and morphed into it. The house belched and then told us to screw off and go away. You had to see it to believe it. Let's get out of here, old buddy, I said after giving him a good pat. Capone pulled me with the sheer force of a strong dog. My jelly-filled legs did their best to keep up. Meanwhile, the monster's house was screaming bloody murder, puffing smoke from its cigar-like chimney as we made our escape. As we approached the end of Monster Street, the creatures who had been watching us from a distance all disappeared into their houses. The wind began to howl and the normal world returned. The glow of the fingernail moon hung like an ugly panting. Many hours had passed by. I shrugged, and then I heard a noise. It was coming from the road stair part at the edge of that disreputable street. Someone was inside and trying to get out. My heart sank. Should we go back? I asked my dog. Capone Barton wiggled his tail, looking up with eager eyes. I had never entered the street from this end before, so I feared the worst. Capone shot out of my hands like a flash of white lightning. When I caught up to him, I juttered. Someone was locked in the trunk of the car. A girl. Tommy, she shouted. The sheer terror in her voice was enough to induce a lifetime of panic attacks. Tommy, is that you? Trish, I stuttered through chattering teeth. Help me, Tommy, the voice pleaded. Please. Part of me died right there. I simply couldn't believe it. Twenty years of guilt lifted from my shoulders and landed on the snow with a thud. Trish, I said, is it really you? Help me, Tommy, before the bad men come back. My mind split into a million pieces. I didn't know what to do next. A shiny set of keys was dangling from the ignition. Nervously, I reached for the door handle. It opened. I leaned in and swiped the keys, careful not to touch the blameless leather seat, which rate of formaldehyde. Keys in hand, I scurried back to the trunk. Tommy, is that you? The voice inside the trunk had asked. Something in her voice seemed off. I turned the key. A plume of steam wafted as the apartment-sized trunk swung open like a chrome casket, Inside was a fresh-looking teenage girl with strawberry-blonde hair, with smooth curls folded over her finely freckled face. Her clothes were in disarray. Trish, help me, Tommy, please. Their hands and feet were shackled. Hold on, I said, needing time to think. The houses trembled as their doors flew open. The monsters got out simultaneously and then they attacked. I looked down at Trish, whose eyes were as big as an ocean. Without a second thought, I reached in and I pulled her out. Her skin was a block of ice. She weighed a ton, and by the time I placed her shackled body onto the sidewalk, I was surrounded by monsters. We've been waiting for you, Tommy, the bad man said. The thing soared toward me, and its hand was a straight razor which glistened under the pale light of the cold street lamp. I looked down at Trish, whose eyes had turned into axes, and realized that my worst nightmare had come true. She was one of them. She broke apart the chains as if they were straw. Come stay with us, the monster who was once my girlfriend said. You're not her, I managed to say, trying to avoid her deadpan eyes. "'Oh, but I am,' the thing proclaimed, licking its lizardly lips. "'And I'm so happy here. You'll be, too. You've been chosen.' Her eyes locked into mine, and I shuddered. "'I would be happy here as long as I was with her.' Our hands met, and she pulled me close and kissed me sweetly. Her lips were like linoleum. Her body is cold as a corpse, but I was home.' The monsters applauded and the houses opened and shut their doors in celebration. The car pulled up and the door swung open. Get in, the driver said. His long brimmed fedora shielded his face. Okay, I said in a daze. Oh, Tommy, Trish said, squeezing my hands. I just knew that you would come back. She got in first and then tapped the spot next to her. I went in. As I was entering the vehicle, something grabbed me from behind. Capone. The bull mastiff's jaws found the seat of my pants and forced me out of the vehicle. Let's go, boy, I said, gripping his leash with both hands. Capone led us to safety. The monsters protested and then retreated back inside their haunted homes. When I turned around, the street was gone. No trace of it anywhere. I pulled my phone from my coat pocket and gasped. What the? It was 9 o'clock, which was weird. What disturbed me the most was the date. March 29th, 2022. Apparently, I had been missing for two years. My house had been sold and my position at the firm had been replaced. I have nothing. Well, that's not true. I still love Capone, a.k.a. the best dog ever. After much negotiating, I've reacquired some of my assets. Consequently, I'm residing at a cheap motel, contemplating the mess that has become my life. May this be a lesson to you. Beware the street of monsters. If by chance you've been chosen, and you've happened to pass through it, turn back. Otherwise, the bad men will take you, and you'll become one of them. Because every four years on February 29th, the street of monsters will return. I was exploring an old abandoned quarry. I think I found God's body. Written by Sugar Sode. I've always liked to think of myself as somewhat of an urban explorer. There are a ton of derelict buildings in my hometown, and I visited each one. I found nothing of interest in many of them, but I did find a group of mannequins that had been set up as if they were having a dinner party. I was running out of places to explore when I thought of the Miller Quarry, which had been closed for nearly twenty years. It used to be the main employer in our town, until the money all ran out and everyone was laid off. It turned our once prosperous town into a bit of a ghost town. It took me almost a half hour to cycle there and I had to hop over a fence to get inside. I stupidly got my trousers caught on the top of the railing and I had to rip them to get off. I went through my bag of supplies and made sure that I had everything that I could possibly need. I made my way inside while gazing around at all the machinery that now lay rusted and forgotten. I was making plans on how I should spend my day as I reached the top of the quarry. I stopped dead in my tracks while peering downwards at what lay beneath. There appeared to be what looked like a giant man who covered nearly the entire floor of the quarry. He was wearing a robe that was torn in many places and had long white hair. He lay unmoving on, on the ground, with his head lying to the side as if he was asleep. I stood there speechless, while my brain tried to comprehend what I was looking at. I began to feel lightheaded and realized that I hadn't breathed in nearly a minute. I took a few deep breaths and started moving into the quarry. My eyes never left his face as I walked towards him. His size dwarfed anything that I had ever seen in my life. My best estimate is that his body was about a mile or more in length. Everything about him was incredible, and I stood in awe of what I had found. I initially thought that he had fallen from the sky, but noticed that the ground around him was flat as if he had just laid down. If he had fallen then, then there would have been an earthquake due to the force of his body hitting the ground. I made my way towards his face and stopped when I saw his eyes. It looked like something had been cutting into his eyes as I could see bloody pulp dripping down his face. I did a full 360 turn as I felt like something was watching me. I couldn't see anyone but I couldn't shake the feeling that there was someone else here. The quarry was lined up with shadows An entire army could be around me and I might not even have seen them. I once again turned back to his face and watched in amazement as one of his eyes began twitching. I let out a scream as a black demon ripped its way out. It launched itself into the sky and landed behind me. I spun around to face it and felt fear running through my body. The creature looked like a crow but the proportions were all wrong as it was twice the height of me. It stared at me and seemed to be judging me. It let out an ear-splitting caw and threw itself into the air. Its cry was answered by dozens of other cries, as dozens of similar creatures appeared from crevices hidden along the length of the quarry. They began flying over my head, which reminded me of vultures circling their prey. Blood was dripping down from them, as they had obviously been feasting on his flesh. I barely had time to react when one of them suddenly spiraled down towards me. I threw myself to one side but its claws cut into my shoulder. I began to panic as I knew there was no way that I could get past these abominations. I had to avoid two more attacks and was near exhaustion at this point. I made a split second decision and began racing towards the giant's body. The cries from above became deafening. As I had got to his face, his mouth was partly open and I began to push my way inside. I felt something brush against my back as I finally managed to make it inside. One of the crows was trying to follow me, but wasn't able to open the mouth any further. It pushed its claws in a desperate attempt to drag me out, but I retreated away until it finally gave up. I let out a sigh of relief and looked around at what now could end up being my prison, the mouth was being lit up by a strange orange light that was coming from his flash. I expected there to be a rancid smell due to him being dead, but it strangely smelled like freshly sliced lemons. I checked my shoulder and I was relieved to see that the injury was only minor, as the crow's claws had only grazed me. I had and drank a small amount to replenish my strength while trying to decide what my best course of action could be. I kept gazing over towards his throat and wondering what could await me down there. My decision on what I should do was forced on me as the crows made another attempt to get inside of me. They were using their claws as levers and they were trying to pry open his mouth. I rushed towards the throat as one of the crows was now halfway inside. I ran down the length of the throat, feeling the floor beneath me sink with every footstep. The cause of the crows faded as it got further away from them. I finally reached an immense open space and halted while looking around. I could see his ribs high above me as they dwarfed any building that I had seen in my life. There were a few cracks noticeable on them as if they had been broken somehow. I heard a thunderous noise above me and looked up to see a giant maw lowering itself towards me. I could see lines of teeth inside that seemed to be swirling around like the bottom of a lawnmower. I began running into the cavern before it could engulf me. I looked over my shoulder and saw that it had stopped and now stood still. I slowed down to catch my breath and spotted more of these creatures in the distance. They made me think of worms that had somehow been turned into demonic entities. They were slowly moving so all I had to do was stay well away from them to survive. They were using their teeth to eat away at the flesh that lined the cavern. They seemed to grow in size every time they ate a chunk of meat. I found a corner that was well away from anything and had cover on nearly all sides. I knew that it would be dangerous but I really needed to sleep. I slowly fell asleep with the picture of that worm's mouth floating above me. I awoke the next morning to what sounded like boulders being flung about. I peered out of my hiding space to see the worms fighting against dozens of four-legged insects. The insects had spikes embedded in their heads which they had used to pierce the worm's hide. Neither side seemed to have an advantage and soon the cavern was littered. With their dead and dying bodies, I grabbed my things and began to make my way towards the far end of the cavern. I did dodge numerous attacks but luckily, they were more interested in killing each other than trying to get me. I was almost crushed at one time as one of the insects was thrown through the air and it landed an arm's throw away from where I was. I reached the far end of the cavern in almost an hour of walking and I looked back to see the battle was finally over. The worms had been wiped out, and these surviving insects were now feasting on their flesh. I continued on my journey and almost screamed in joy as I saw sunlight up ahead. I made my way through a long, narrow tunnel, until I reached the tip and cautiously looked out. There was no sign of any crows and there was a forest in the distance, I crawled outside and looked back to where I had crawled out of. I laughed to myself, as I thought this guy would definitely be a big hit with the ladies. I managed to make it to the forest, but heard these screeches of the crows who were still circling. I now lie on my couch wondering if I should tell someone. How do you tell the world that you think you have found God's body here? It's been a year since my friend pranked our entire school. We're still locked down, and the update is at 68%. Written by Trash Tia. It's been a year since our school has been quarantined. Cut off from the rest of the world. Because of what is here, what might get out. I'm sure one day the truth will come out about Blackwood Academy. Maybe we'll end up on the world news, our names written in history, or maybe I'm just fantasizing about it. It's good to imagine though. I don't want to live in the dark anymore. I want to be known. I want our situation to be known across the world. I'm 17 years old and I haven't seen the sky in 12 months because the windows have bars in them. And even when I peer through them, I see green, I see vines that twisted around us, trees, like Mother Nature has taken us into her arms. At least that's what I want to believe. The actual truth would be just another attempt to hide us away from the real world. I even breathed real, proper air from the outside and felt the breeze on my face. I'm supposed to be graduating this year. I'm supposed to be going to college. I can't lie to myself and say that that's going to happen. Because it's not. I promised myself I wouldn't go on and on about things that don't matter. But it's hard not to when I don't know how to start off a post properly. And do I start by introducing myself? This is my first post, so, I guess, bear with me. I want you to know what life is like here. For the world to help us. For now, however... Until we become public knowledge, our school remains invisible, forgotten, so that's why I'm here, why I'm writing this to you. I'm so sick of not existing. Sure, I used to make self-deprecating jokes about wanting to end it like the rest of my generation, but I didn't mean it. Do you know the story of Sleeping Beauty? I mean, of course you do. It was my comfort book as a child. The story of the princess put to sleep by the evil witch and locked away in a tower. Or a little bit like that. Though there are no sleeping princesses, magical kisses, or fairies. When I think of a fairy tale, I don't think of Aurora or Prince Philip, or the sleeping spell that she was under. I think of her tower. I think of her tower hidden deep, deep in the forest. Eaten up by nature. Entangled in greenery. That is Blackwood Academy. Like Aurora's Tower, we have been locked away. Eaten up, not just by nature, but by the people pretending that we don't exist. Like it's that easy. Instead of being under a sleeping spell cast by an evil witch, though, we are instead in a permanent state of nothing. Purgatory. Neither living nor dead. I don't exist anymore, according to the outside world. Like everyone else here, our names have been cruelly torn away, covered up. They've wiped us off the face of the earth and you are none the wiser to what is going on here. I would like to think that it's to avoid causing panic. But over the last year, I've been led to believe that, in the case of the outside world, ignorance is bliss. You choose to turn your head and see the world through rose-tinted glasses. We're already in a pandemic, so why actively look for more threats to our planet? It's not like I blame you. If I was an outsider and knew even the slightest glimmer of the stuff that goes on here, I'd try my best to ignore it too. I guess what I'm here for is to be the one to put our story out there. I don't want to wait years for the world to find out about us. For the military to finally come clean and admit, Oh yeah, those kids. They were dangerous so we got rid of them. Simple enough, huh? They don't think about lives that we wanted to live. Our families back home. Their mouths sealed shut with a good hunk of cash that will allow them to retire. They don't care that we wanted to graduate. That we wanted to see the world. Have kids and grow old. You know, the so called American dream. They don't give a crap. They just left us to rot here, which I can understand, at least part of me can. I can understand that they're making sure whatever is here with us doesn't get out. In the near future, if we're discovered, people will ask how did it happen? How did our school turn into what it is now? How did we become the so called Ground Zero? Was it a gas leak? Radiation poisoning? Wi-Fi? According to my Grammy, Wi-Fi messes with our molecules. She didn't elaborate. One day, Grammy just came out with it out of the blue. She was also convinced that I had developed major health problems if I slept with my phone next to me or went more than two feet near the microwave when it was on. I can partially understand where she was coming from, but come on. I just wanted to cook my Hot Pockets and... She was grabbing and pulling me away, like the thing was about to explode in my face. Anyway, no, no, and no. It wasn't Wi Fi or radiation poisoning or bad chicken nuggets. I'm sure some other theory will come up at some point, but no. The reason behind the disaster and then quarantine of our school was simply an April Fool's joke that went wrong, orchestrated by my best friend. How about that, huh? My best friend ended the world, or at least the world around our school. Maybe this thing will get out soon. Maybe there'll be some kind of leak or outbreak outside. And then I can say she officially ended the world as you know it too. But until then, this is our problem. She started this and we've been living it for the past year. Well, not exactly living. I will get to that as I write. Up until April 1st, 2021, I had never done anything significantly bad. I mean, I stole the Twinkie on a dare in fourth grade to try and impress the girls in my class, if that counts. Mom treated it like I had committed a war crime and I was grounded for two weeks. So I had definitely put that incident up there in the significantly bad category. I had never done anything truly bad, though. I used to think that as a teenager, I was invincible. It's the age, right? We all think that we're going to be that age forever. And there are no repercussions to our actions. I was never going to die. And if I was going to, it would be way later on in life. Or maybe I would off myself at 30 so I wouldn't age. That's what my mindset was. Toxic, yes. I was obsessed with my own youth and was convinced my time would never run out. I was a dumb kid. I still am a dumb kid but being in this kind of situation has put a lot of things into perspective. For example, I can say my mom was right when she told me too much screen time on my phone would make me sick. I'm still unsure about the microwave thing though. Grammy always made some pretty wild theories. Maybe I'll tell you about them someday. If I get out of here alive, I'll make it my goal, I promise. Okay, so I'll start from the beginning. I thought the worst part of that day was getting rejected by Connor Marlowe. It was already a pretty crappy day to start with. I woke up with a crummy headache, and there was no milk for my cereal, and I had completely forgotten about an essay which was due. It was April Fool's Day, though, and I was looking forward to seeing chaos ensue so at school. It usually did, It was always a competition amongst the students in who could do the wildest prank, and that year was no exception. The whole school was eager to take Melanie Jason's crown, the 2019 winner. We don't talk about 2020. After she had somehow convinced everyone the world was ending, by broadcasting one of those mock emergency alert alarms on the Tanoi, alerting us an alien invasion was imminent and to prepare ourselves. Earth was under attack. Every tannoy school screamed at 9am, when the majority of us were still half asleep. She even played the siren, so you can imagine how terrified we all were. I fell for it, of course, being a confused freshman, still half asleep from the Netflix bins the night before. I'd almost crapped myself. Melanie had gotten suspended for it, though her argument had been that she had been mimicking the famous... War of the Worlds radio broadcast for an assignment. Since then, Melanie has held the top spot. The prank was pretty good, admittedly, and she caught a lot of us off guard. I even heard that some teachers had freaked out in class, though that was unlikely. It turned into a game of telephone. Rumors being spread around that some kids had panic attacks. Some kids attacked others. I even heard one where two seniors apparently decided it was the best time to get it on, like right there. Kids wanted to follow in Melanie's footsteps. I had caught offhand conversations and word of mouth that the next April Fool prank was going to knock Melanie off the top spot, and my best friend was eager to be the one to do it. I wasn't really thinking about Rory's prank, though. I had things on my mind that morning, Connor Marlowe to be specific, I had been crushing on him for a while, you know. The butterflies in your stomach kind of crushed. I don't know what it was about him. He wasn't exactly conventionally attractive, kinda looked like he had rolled out of bed most days. He had dark hair and wore a lot of plaid, always carrying his beaten-up camera everywhere, hanging on a ribbon around his neck. He was kind of awkward, but the cute kind, the kind that made me sort of fall for him. We were friends, having met in the school newspaper club. Connor took his work a lot more seriously than me. Though we had hung out a bunch of times, and being a naive idiot, I had taken that as a sign that he actually liked me. Which was badly miscalculated on my part. If I had actually listened to word of mouth from classmates, I would have found out Connor wasn't really into girls. It was much later on, post The End of the World when I find out about him, but at that point, I was completely deaf and blind to any rumors. God, if only I would have at least some semblance of common sense, then I might not have made a complete fool out of myself and enjoyed my last minutes of what I called normal. But no, I was an idiot, and I deserved it. I had already gone through our hypothetical conversation a thousand times in my head, And at that point, I just wanted to get it over with. The world could end. That's what I told myself. Rubbing my clammy hands together. And then what would I do? I would regret not telling him. I was also running on three cups of coffee, maybe four. So I was practically bouncing with unhinged energy. Hey Connor, I caught him on the way to class. As usual, he would be in his own world, thoughts in the clouds nodding his head to music in his ears. I had to tap him on the shoulder to get his attention. Twisting around to face me, Connor's frown quirked into a smile. He tugged an earphone out. Hey Mara, hey. He nodded at me, gesturing ahead. Are you, uh, are you coming to class? Yeah. I pulled a face, joining him. I didn't do the assignment. For which class? He smirked. Dude, we have a bunch. Uh, Mr. Tenor. Connor laughed. His laugh was one of the things that I loved about him. It was one of those uh, throwing your head back belly laughs. You know when their whole body vibrates with them. Oh crap, you're dead. I'm not dead, I said. And when I caught a smirk, I gave up. Okay, yeah, I'm dead. You're seriously dead. Connor nudged me. My condolences. I shoved him back. Shut up. He was right, though. I was pretty sure that I was going to die. Mr. Tenner, our English teacher, considered students who failed to complete assignments defects who didn't belong in his class. He was a bitter old man and seemed to thrive on humiliating students. I remember this one girl in our class, Rosie, forgot to do the assignment because her aunt had passed away a few days before Mr. Tenor had mocked a sad face. Well, I'm sure your aunt would have wanted you to do the task assigned. Rosie had burst into tears and ran out. I found out the next day that she had joined another class. And I didn't blame her. Mr. Tenor was an awful human being. Seriously, screw that guy. The thing about Connor was, we only really talked about schoolwork and the club. So it was fairly easy to run out of things to say. What can I say? I spent most of my time on TikTok, and he was into, like, I don't know, indie stuff. He had watched the Midsummer director's cut at the movies and spent almost an hour talking about the cinematography, and how it was a masterpiece. The only thing that I knew was that there was a guy who was put into a bear, and something about some type of blood. That's it. When I told Connor this, he looked at me like I had just attacked his family. So yeah, we didn't share interests. and maybe he was slightly on the pretentious side, but hey, I couldn't help who I fell for. Connor just made me dizzy. The two of us started walking and made idle conversation about the weather and classwork, pushing through the crowd of kids heading to first period. Connor didn't really speak, only offering me awkward smiles, his gaze flicking from me to his phone in his hand. He probably wanted to put his earphones back in. Is the school newspaper club still tonight? I asked him, knowing dang well that it was. The school newspaper held their meetings every Thursday at 4pm in room 45HF, a music room. I usually spend sessions typing up random articles or doing my best to help Connor with whatever project he was working on. There were five of us. Me, Connor... A kid called James who never did any work, and he talked about his sex life in vivid detail. And Sarah, a quiet girl who always brought cake from home fries. Yeah, it is. Connor lifted his camera for emphasis, a grin spreading across his lips. He always got excited about his camera, like a little kid. I'm taking pictures of the new school gymnasium. He shot me a hopeful look. Do you want to interview the coach? You can come along. The idea of standing in the new school gymnasium, which smelled like burnt plastic and bleach, interviewing Coach Croft, who was very intense when it came to interviews, wasn't exactly my idea of fun. Still, though, I found myself nodding. Yeah, is Sarah still doing the piece on cyberbullying? Uh huh. Connor idly played with the string of his camera. As we headed up the last few steps, there were a group of kids at the top of the stairs yelling. My stomach gurgled. I really regretted drinking all that coffee. James is doing an article on the girls swim team. He shot me a grin. Obviously. Seriously? I rolled my eyes. What is there to write about? No idea, but it's James, so I'm sure he'll figure something out. After a moment, I just came out with it. I couldn't stand waiting any longer. Hey, do you want to hang out? We had reached the top of the stairs and Connor turned to me, curious eyes drinking me in. Do you mean after the club meeting? He nodded, his lips curving into a grin. Yeah, sure, I'll text Sarah and James too. They've been talking about the new guides of the movie, if you want to go and see it crap. He was totally oblivious. Actually, I, I met the two of us. My voice was small. If you, uh, if you want to. Connor's smile fell. Running a hand through his hair, he shook his head, but his smile was still polite. Mara, you're a great friend, but I don't really see you like that, he said, sputtering out a nervous laugh. I actually, uh, He was cut off by a loud bang, which startled me from my stupor as I took in Connor's words. I could already feel my cheeks heating up, my stomach crawling into my throat. Twisting around, I glimpsed the source of the crash. A guy who had just walked headfirst into a locker. I vaguely recognized him. That kid who suffered from narcolepsy. I remembered him becoming the talk of the school during freshman year. When he would sleep through his glasses Even drifting off standing up And walking into things They called him a vampire The crowd around us were laughing And the kid regarded them with a scowl Sleepy eyes half at the ray fringe Which was way too long Sticking under a knitted beanie Very funny He told the crowd Alright everyone Get it all out Let's all laugh at the disabled guy His smile was mocking then he was practically egging them on. Dude, just don't come to school. Joey Summers, a senior, standing a few feet away, spoke up. If you're going to fall asleep everywhere, just stay at home, man. You're just walking around like a zombie. The guy rolled his eyes. Wow, thanks, Joey. I'm happy to know that you care. He just spitting facts, man. The crowd tittered with Joey, and the kid opened his locker and grabbed his box. I noticed that his hands were trembling. Yep, everyone laugh, like I'm a friggin' slapstick cartoon. With him joining in with being the butt of the joke, however, the laughter faded into an awkward silence. Joey turned away and started talking to his friends, but the kids seemed genuinely confused, still half asleep. I was watching him blinking rapidly, probably disoriented and unsure of where to go. When Connor stepped in front of me, ''It's not that I don't like you, Mara,'' he said. ''I just...'' ''It's fine,'' I cut him off. ''Dude, it's... it's cool.'' I played with my ponytail with fervent fingers, at the point that I would gladly welcome a meteor hitting the school. I obviously got the wrong idea. ''No, no, it's not that,'' Connor started to say, before his phone vibrated in his hand. ''I felt mine, too, in my back pocket.'' It wasn't just the two of us. I glimpsed other kids pulling out their phones, or if they already had them, frowning down at the screen. Connor had a wiry smile. What's this? Oh, don't look at that, I said. It's just Rory's April Fool's prank. Huh? Connor didn't look up from his phone, and looking around, he wasn't the only one. I was reminded of Rory's prank what she had told me about a little earlier, when we were headed to school. A monkey. I had raised my eyebrows when she had shoved her phone in front of my face. Rory shook blonde curls out of her eyes. Her smile was enough to brighten my mood. It's a meme. Yeah, I've seen it, I chuckled. It's the stinky one, right? Rory, that meme was like months old. I gripped my backpack strap tighter. This is what you're going to prank people with? The uh uh-oh stinky meme? It's funny, Rory laughed. Look at it. I pushed the phone out of my face, settling my friend with a smirk. Yeah, but I don't think it's really April Fool's worthy. Rory's eyes glinted. Not yet. Her words took me off guard. Huh? What do you mean? Rory winked at me and ran ahead. And I had no choice but to follow her. Hey, what did you do? Turning to me, Rory was grinning wildly. I bought a thing. A thing. Yeah, I followed this link on Reddit and it brought me to this website where you can like buy viruses. It was only like 10 bucks. Her eyes were shining. It's a mass text. She whispered excitedly. Like it connects itself to the network to everyone's phones and everyone will see it. How cool is that? Rory rubbed her hands together with a grin. And you can't get rid of it either, unless you turn off your phone. It works like a parasite, spreading to all forms of technology, not just phones. She turned to me with childlike glee. Wait, does that mean every device? Like school printers too? Toasters? No, I shoved her laughing. They mean TVs, whiteboards, that kind of stuff. I was suddenly curious, because this kind of thing, despite being hilarious, it sounded super shady. Where did you find it? No idea, I had to download another web browser. I had a hard time taking in what she was saying. Rory, did you? I trailed off, unable to stop myself. Did you get this off the dark web? She shrugged. I don't think so, it was just a website. Which sounds exactly like the dark web. I groaned. What even is it, like a file? Rory nodded. I guess, I don't actually have it. I just have to give the go-ahead in the IT room. She pulled something from her pocket. A USB drive. They told me that I just have to plug it into any computer and that they'll do the rest. I stopped walking. They... Yeah, they were anonymous. Roy turned to me, folding her arms. Why are you looking at me like that? I continued walking, a little faster this time. Like what? Like you're about to say this is a bad idea. Roy's voice echoed on my mind as I watched Connor Marlowe go fifteen seconds without looking up from his phone. But not just that, he seemed frozen in place. I jumped when his backpack slid from his shoulder, and it hit the ground with a thump, which didn't even phase him. Behind him, a girl dropped her Starbuck's latte, and then next to her, another guy's books slipped from his hands. Things were hitting the floor suddenly—just normal objects: laptops, coats, drinks—but no phones. Something ice cold slipped down my spine when Connor's body seemed to jolt his fingers tightening around his phone. I glimpsed a puddle of coffee pooling beneath my feet. It was almost like the world had come to a standstill around me. Connor, I managed to find my voice, reaching for my own phone. Rory's video couldn't have been that captivating, I thought. It was just a stupid meme. And then just like that, my world exploded. I'm not sure a point had hit that something was very wrong, Maybe it was when Connor Marlowe lifted his head. The light in his eyes, that very human light that I had recognized in any living person, fizzling out. There was something in the air. Something crackling that I felt. I sensed and I heard it. I was too busy staring at Connor. At the visible change in him. A transformation happening directly in front of me which carried in the air. Seemingly taking control of every kid around me. Bodies jolting like something was there, crawling into their heads. His body seemed to relax and go limp, but he was still standing like he was suspended on puppet strings. I was choking on words that I wanted to say, wanting to cry out when Joey Summers lunged for a girl near him, latching his teeth onto her throat and ripping it out. That started an almost domino effect. All around me the kids started attacking each other, A girl threw herself at two guys, and the group of them tumbled down the stairs, clawing at each other. Screams erupted around me, as I was reminded of animals in a zoo. But they weren't animals. They were my classmates. My gaze until then had been on Joey, who was straddling the girl that he had ripped the throat from. Zombies. That was my first thought. But he wasn't eating her. His expression was vacant. The boys seemed to study her with empty eyes before jumping up and taking off down the hallway and slamming, almost comically, into a door. He was laughing, I realized. Joy was giggling like a child, slamming his face again and again and again into the door. Red splattered, painting wood. I was aware of taking a slow step backwards, but I couldn't tear my eyes off of him. His body slipped to the ground before getting back up he was still laughing. Again, his head didn't look like a head anymore after only five blows. A girl with a ponytail grabbed hold of his neck with an animalistic shriek, biting into his face and ripping away the flesh. But the two of them were grinning, blank eyes wild like they were enjoying it. Like they were really enjoying it. I couldn't move. Rory. Her name clouded my thoughts. Rory, Rory, Rory. My trembling hands gingerly brushed the back of my jeans, fingering my phone. I wasn't thinking. Crap, I wasn't thinking. I had to get to her. Cool hands were suddenly wrapped around my throat and choking the breath from my lungs. I was on my back and Connor was on top of me. His eyes were different. Unlike Joey's and unlike others around us, mindlessly throwing themselves at each other. There was the slightest glint of awareness in his expression. A manic smile was stretched across his face. He was speaking, but I couldn't understand what he was saying. I couldn't breathe. With one hand still gripping my throat, Connor pawed for his phone that he had dropped. I already knew what he was going to do, and I tried to fight back. tried to shove his body off of me, but I couldn't. Not when he was squeezing the breath out of me. Around me, I only saw red, pooling red, but no bodies. Kids with pieces torn out of them. Kids with only one eye, a torso that had been torn, spilling glistening innards. They were still moving, and contorting around me. But unlike them, Connor was conscious. He was thinking, but his thoughts had been twisted. Giggling like a little kid, he shoved his phone in my face and I squeezed my eyes shut. He was conscious enough to want to show me the video, I thought dizzily. Why? Why had it affected Connor differently? I didn't have enough time to think because his thumbs were in my eyes, pulverizing, and I was screaming. Gotta look! Connor's voice was a hysterical giggle riddled static. The phone blinked on and off and on and off, like like it was connected to him. Gotta look, gotta look. Pain exploded. Nuclear pain. Pain that I didn't think was possible. That I didn't think I could feel. When I cried out, he let go and shoved the phone into my face. I was looking at exactly what I had seen earlier. One Rory had shown me. A 15 second video of a smiling monkey. And the familiar audio from the meme. I didn't see anything wrong with it at first. But it wasn't the video that was the problem. It was what overlaid it. A low frequency screech rattling my ears. I felt Connor's fingers grasping at my eyes and pulling my eyelids open. And I was forced to watch it. I was forced to drink it in. I won't be fully able to write out what happened to me. Because I still don't know. I only remember Splinter's. I remember something snapping inside my head. I felt it, like something in my brain had been severed, broken, and let loose. I remember a boy coming up behind Connor wielding a fire extinguisher and hitting him over the head over and over again until he was just a mess and unrecognizable, but I found it funny. No, more than funny, hysterical. I laughed and others around me joined in. I laughed and my thoughts grew blurry and disjointed. I stood up, swaying from side to side, and I remember wanting the boy to do it again. I wanted to see Connor's head get smashed. I wanted to see everything splatter on the floor, a look of hopelessness on his face. That's what I wanted to see. I wanted to see him scream. I wanted to see his pain, but I didn't get that. Even when I had grabbed the fire extinguisher myself and continued the attack, bringing it down on Connor, what was left of him didn't lose its skeletal smile. And he didn't die. He didn't drop. Connor just lay there, his body rattling, trembling with each discarded phone. Listen, I wanted to skip over this part. I wanted to lie to you and pretend that it didn't happen, but it did. I became a puppet to whatever was released and my only thought was to cause pain. I did unspeakable things to people, and I ate them like it was a snack. I was part of this hive mind, a group of kids with enough consciousness to know what they were doing, but the thing inside of us, the thing wriggling inside of her head, still kept us on a leash. It told us to kill and we did. I'm not sure how many days went by or maybe weeks or months before I was knocked out from behind. Day and night don't exist at Blackwood. Neither does time. Through splinters in my memory, I remember being knocked out from behind. The thing inside me didn't like that. It told me to fight back. It told me to go after the attacker. But then though, something cold was slicing into the back of my neck. And it was the first that I had felt in so long. I'm not sure when the thing let me go or if it was forced to let me go, but when I fully came to, aware of everything that I had done, the kids that I had attacked, I didn't want to stay. I wanted to finally die. I could still taste them on my lips, tainted on my tongue. When I fully came to, I was in a classroom. It had been trashed, of course, and barely looked like a classroom anymore. The doors were barricaded with desks and chairs. The light above flickered. I was tied down to a desk. My arms and legs were bound in rope and something warm pulled down the back of my neck. There was something there, though, something soft, cushioning my throat. Well, well, well. A voice spoke up. There was a figure in front of me. Welcome. Test subject number 18. Forgive me for the restraints, but you have tried to attack me multiple times. I've managed to get it out, and judging by your return to sanity, it looks like it worked. I couldn't find my voice for a moment. The whole time, I had been a puppet under that thing's control. I hadn't really used my mouth. Instead, my thoughts projected between the hive mind that we all shared. What? I licked my lips. They tasted like rusty coins. The voice was a guy, and I recognized him, but I wasn't sure where from. When the figure in front of me moved closer, it caught the light. A kid my age hiding behind some serious bed hair, hanging in his eyes. His smile wasn't quite friendly. He looked more excited, like I was this cool new specimen that he had just put in a jar. Holy crap. Peering in my face, the kid chuckled. You really are back to normal, huh? Before I could speak, he cleared his throat. Okay, let's get this over with. The guy grabbed something, a notebook, and a pen, twirling the pen between his fingers. Name? At that point, I didn't know. I didn't know anything about myself except that I was a monster. I don't know. He scribbled something down. Uh huh. How about your age? Do you remember anything about yourself? I did. I remembered that last day. I remembered Connor Marlowe. I remembered him trying to kill me. I shook my head. No. He slammed his notebook shut. Forgive me for being gross, but you want to see it, right? See what? What I got out of you. I was suddenly all too aware of the makeshift bandage around my neck. You got that thing out. Yeah, I used to watch some YouTube tutorials. The guy's lips curled into a smile. I wanted to be a doctor. I struggled to take in his words. In my mind, it was a video that messed with my head, that had caused me to go crazy. I don't understand. How did you get it out? What was there to get out? His eyes darkened. I'm going to call it a root. I had to wait until night to try. I figured out that it seems to leave the brain during nights while it hibernates. No idea. Maybe it's taking care of its host. Something inside of my gut twisted. The guy wandered over to a small table and picked something up before making his way back over. In his hands was a coke can. He peered at it. Not the best container right now but the science building exploded. Thanks to you guys a couple of weeks ago. Shooting me the side-eye, his lips quirked into a smirk. Not that I needed the crap or anything, so this will have to do. Holding the can close to me, the guy hovered it in front of my eyes. You see it? At first, I didn't know what he was talking about before I caught movement at the bottom of the can. They looked like an octopus tentacle, a single root-like thing coiled at the very bottom of the can. That, the guy pulled the can away, is the stinky Uh uh-oh virus, a crafty little guy. I blinked at him. The what? He shrugged. Let's call it the SUU virus. I prefer the Uh uh-oh stinky though, reminds me of simpler times. I could only stare at him. No, I said, no, this thing, it's just a video. He nodded. Yeah, it started as one, but stuff evolves, dude. Have you played a plague The guy sighed. You've been out of it for like, I don't know, eight months? Things have changed. April Fool's Day. A mass text message was sent to every device in the school and everyone who saw it lost their minds. There are three categories. There are the Walking Dead ripoffs who rejected the virus and went to full zombie mode. Then, there are successes, the ones that the virus aimed to make, an army of psychopaths which you were a part of. He lost his smile. They hunt down kids who survived and kept their minds and forced them to watch the video, and that's if they're feeling merciful. I've seen them do a lot of awful things to people, and you were probably a part of it too. And finally, there are kids like me, kids who forgot to charge their phones that day. The guy shrugged. Or in my case, fell asleep. I tend to do that a lot. Before I could speak, he continued, gesturing around him. All of us living in a so called utopia ruled by Aurora Michelson, their creator, and who they treat like a dang god. Sticking his fingers down his throat, he pretended to gag. It's messed up. Whatever that thing is, it's taken complete control of her. She's like their queen. I went cold all over. Rory, I whispered. Do you mean Rory? Is that her name? He pulled a face. Yeah, I mean, you'll know what I mean when you see her. When I see her. The kid frowned at me before, sighing and undoing my restraints. He held out a hand for me to grab and I took it thankfully. He pulled me off the desk. I'm Jasper, by the way. If that thing is still lingering inside of you and you try anything... I won't hesitate taking you out. He smiled wirily. No hard feelings, okay. I struggled to steel myself, my head spinning. How long have I been? I trailed off. One of them. Jasper strode over to the window and pulled back curtains spattered red. I followed him hesitantly. There were bars in the windows and when I pressed my face against them, I glimpsed a flash of green outside. Jasper had gestured to the bars. They put us in quarantine a day after the outbreak. At first, it seemed like they were helping, but the freaks just ate them when they tried coming in. And then you guys warned them not to step on territory. So, since then, they've pretty much given up on us. They don't want what's in here to get out. It's selfish, but I can see where they're coming from. I was already moving away from him and kneeling on the floor near the door, peering at vine-like roots entangled in the hinge. What is that? He came to kneel next to me. Jasper had lost his smile. When that thing can't take control, it basically explodes in their heads. It doesn't kill them, keeping the body alive, and whatever that is sprouts from their head. It's everywhere, all over the school. It started in the IT room and it spread right here. Thankfully, that stuff isn't dangerous without a host. And just like the Sioux virus, it goes to sleep at night. The boy turned to me when I got to my feet. There's something else that I should show you, but we have to be quiet, okay? At these hours, your group sleeps in the corridors and it freaks to roam around at night. Whatever this thing is, it's intelligent. And it's built an army of sorts. The ones who didn't go zombie have one mission, and that's to convert survivors. Anyone left Lucid. He shuddered. They're her so-called loyal followers, and you are one too. They're probably looking for you, so we have to keep a seriously low profile. Jasper shot me the side eye. Unless you want to go back to them. Ignoring his shy to Mark, I focused on Rory. I need to get her. Rory, I mean. That doesn't sound like a good idea. There are guards. Do you know how to get past them? He frowned. I'm working on it. I managed to brain you, didn't I? I nodded and slowly. Jasper removed the barricades and we stepped out into the corridor. It was pitch black, though my eyes adjusted easily. I asked him why I could see and he explained it was part of heightened senses triggered by the virus. Jasper wielded a baseball bat and moved quickly, dragging me with him. Thick greenery engulfed the corridors, a root-like plant tangled in every door. "'If you see a phone, smash it to pieces in the daylight,' he said. I didn't understand what he meant until we were kneeling in front of what was left of Connor Marlowe. His body was still intact, still breathing, despite him being nothing but a quivering flash. Jasper used the sleeve of a sweater to pick up a discarded phone next to Connor. The screen flashed on and I flinched. Jasper lay a hand on my shoulder. Cool it. It's dead for now. For now? Yeah, look. Jasper pointed to the screen where something had flashed up. They don't show the video anymore, just this. He sent me a look. I would advise smashing it to pieces during the daytime, though. His words twisted something in my gut as I peered at numbers in glaring green. It looked like they were counting down. They're all connected, Jasper said, nodding at Connor and the bodies around him. You see, whatever happens to them, the phones react to it, and vice versa. When Jasper hovered the phone over Connor, his body rattled, eyes flickering. Beneath me, the ground rumbled. What was that? I hissed out. That, Jasper murmured, is the latest update. He was right. Peering at the numbers, it was at 67% complete. Update, I repeated. For what? No clue. This thing has been learning through us. I'm going to guess that it's bad, though. You know, considering they have the ability to shake the earth and play with the lights. As he said that, the bulb above us, the one that I thought was dead, sparkled slightly. Before lighting up, I jumped up, something warm creeping up my throat. I was reminded of what I had been eating for the last god knows how long, and I had to bite into my lower lip to stop myself from barfing. Wait, Jasper hissed out. He fell to his knees, crawling over to Connor. Jasper used the butt of his baseball bat to poke at something moving, slithering on the floor next to Connor's ear. No way, he hissed. That's, that's brain tissue, Jasper said, his voice quivering. It's combined itself through our brain tissue and learned and evolved into a physical form. I peered at the thing, cringing at the way that it squirmed. That's what you got out of me, right? The guy straightened up and turned to me. Yeah, his breath was shuddery. But it's not supposed to be able to survive outside of us. The one that I pulled out of you was dead the second that it touched the can. If this thing can survive outside of us too, we're done for. Because what the heck comes after that? He poked at the thing again his voice a hysterical breath. He stamped on it, but when Jasper lifted his foot, it was still wriggling, still squirming, before slithering back into Connor's ear. Footsteps erupted, what I was sure was going to be a cry ripping from my throat. Running footsteps, laughter, almost a sing-song static noise which crackled on my ear. Mara, come and play Mara, their voices were like a symphony in my ears, reminding me of my name. I I felt them, if that makes any sense. I felt them coming closer. But the thing that had been inside me was gone. So why did I still feel tethered to them? I caught Jasper's frightened eyes. Mara, he whispered, is that you? I could only nod. Oh well, crap, it's your friends. Jasper grabbed my hand, flattening us against the wall. We should go. We found a classroom and barricaded the doors. They don't try and get us at night. That's what Jasper said. It's only in the daylight. That was three days ago. Since then, we've been here. We're safe for now, and I can't stop thinking about this update. What does it mean? Jasper told me the internet has been cut off. But in the same breath he admitted that he's pretty sure That we, all of us together, act like a modem I don't know how I'm getting a connection But if anyone's reading You have to help us and to get us out of here It's weird I haven't had time to come to terms with what I've done yet I know it'll hit me soon I hope, God, I hope it's fast Rory's out there And I've got to find her I know this wasn't her fault. I know it. Right? Thank you all so much for making it to the end and listening to all of this week's stories. I genuinely appreciate it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you are safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.